Well, good morning, everybody. Um, yes, like Ferdy, I like to stand, so I think at least most of the time, I'm also an old man, so maybe I'll sit down at some point too, but uh, at the moment I'm going to, to stand. Um, we're in good time, we're actually, it's, uh, it's 10 to 10. When I taught for many years, about 16 years at undergraduate level at various Catholic colleges in the United States, and when the, when the class session was um, one and a half hours, I gave my students uh, a short break in the middle because of attention deficit disorder. Um, but as we, uh, there are some undergraduates here, but I'm sure you're much smarter undergraduates than the average undergraduate. Um, and the rest are beyond being undergraduates. I'm thinking we can handle an hour and a half, but I do think we don't want to handle longer than an hour and a half, right? So I'm going to, if we start 10 minutes early, I'm going to finish 10 minutes early, right? It's going to be a, a 90 minute session. And it's a class rather than a talk, so I am happy to be interrupted, although interrupted politely by a hand being raised rather than saying oi, toppy voice or something, okay? Um, so if you raise a hand and I see it, I will, I will pause, you know, pause my thought and take the question, and uh, our young friend there will run over at speed and, and, and hold the, uh, the microphone over you. Okay, so before I actually begin the first session, which, uh, as Ferdy says, is on the muses and the talents, Christian theology and uh, the literary imagination, I thought I'd quickly run through the, the 10 sessions that we're going to be doing. That's in your program written down, but you, I hope you'll see some form, some structure to some coherence and cohesion to the way this has been put together. So today is the muses and the talents, Christian theology and, and the literary imagination, which is going to lay, if you like, the philosophical and theological foundations for what follows. And then this afternoon, we'll have the Virgin Muse, Homer, Sophocles, and Virgil. So this pre-Christian, uh, the pre-Christian imagination. And then the third session, the Muses baptized medieval literature. So the, uh, the imagination during the, should, should we say, the, the first centuries uh, of, the first, what, the first 15 centuries of Christendom. And then uh, four and five, the outlawed muse one, Elizabethan Shakespeare. Uh, and then uh, session five, the outlawed muse two, Jacobean Shakespeare. Right? So Shakespeare basically wrote over a period of about 23 or 25 years. Um, and it's about actually pretty much split right down the middle. Uh, in the middle of that is the death of Queen Elizabeth um, and, uh, and then the, the, uh, the reign of James I. So there's the, 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 the plays he wrote during the reign of Queen Elizabeth and those who wrote during the reign of James I. And then the sixth session, Reason, Revolution and Romanticism. Looking at Romanticism in general, but the English Romanticism and the Romantic poets in particular. And then Rome and Romanticism, uh, if you like, the baptism of Romanticism by Newman and Hopkins. Um, and I would say, by the way, I've, I've requested that Ferdy photocopy for everybody uh, the full text of The Wreck of the Deutschland by Hopkins, because a large part of that session is going to be going through the text of that poem. So if it's possible, perhaps, for Ferdy to have that to you some, by some, no later than tomorrow, then perhaps when you have a spare moment, you can at least take a look at the poem before class so it's not completely new to you when you come into the classroom, those of you that haven't read it already. Um, and then 
session eight is the Chester Belloc, uh, G.K. Chesterton and Hilaire Belloc. Um, so in that, that brings us, of course, into the 20th century. And then we have two more in the 20th century, at nine, no, session nine, modernism and the wasteland of modernity. And again, for that, I've asked Ferdy to photocopy for everybody, T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. Uh, so I'd like to be able to go through that. Obviously, we can't, when I've taught the, both of those poems, we take about four or five hours of class time to go through carefully. So we won't be able to do that, but we can, we can dip in, delve and dive somewhat and um, get our feet wet, at least since we're not plunging in the deep end and swimming merrily. Um, and then the final session, and we're going to end on a triumphalist note, as, is, uh, as, as that is the way that history uh, ends, on a triumphalist note at the end of the world when uh, things are brought to consummation and the end of our own individual worlds, which could happen any moment. Uh, when, please God, we will also end triumphantly by being taken up into the church triumphant, into heaven. So we're going to end on a triumphalist note with the muse triumphant, Evening War and J.R.R. Tolkien. Okay, so that's, that's where we're going over the next five days. But we're beginning with the muses and the talents, Christian theology and the literary imagination. Um... And I'm going to begin by saying the two absolutely essential ingredients of Christianity, um, Orthodox Christianity, and of course there, there, are, there, there are more, but these are, this is the core from which everything else emerges, is the Trinity and the Incarnation. Okay, so if anybody call, is not, does not believe in the Trinity, it doesn't matter whether they call themselves Christians, they're not Christians. And if they don't believe that Jesus Christ is God, is truly divine and, 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 and truly man, they are not Christians. So at the heart of what it is to be a Christian is the Trinity and the Incarnation. And when, when we understand that, we can begin to unpack what the anointed imagination is, what the muses are, and what the talents are, and what creative inspiration is. Because I, I also want to show that the talents are not the same thing as inspiration. So even before the Trinity was revealed, if you like, through the gospel, people were beginning to have intimations of the Trinity through reason. So before revelation comes along, before theology comes along to clarify things, ratio, reason itself, is coming to similar conclusions. So for instance, we see in the Greek philosophers the understanding of the transcendentals, the good, the true, and the beautiful. And although the, the, the Greeks would not and could not really have talked in terms of a trinity, of something being uh, a triune, you know, three in one, as God is uh, three in one, the good, the true, and the beautiful, they did realize, could not actually really be separated. That they were so interwoven that they were inseparable. And I really do think the good, the true, and the beautiful was an inkling and an intimation on the part of reason of the fullness of that revelation in theology in the gospel. So you know, the good is always true and beautiful. The true is always good and beautiful. The beautiful is always good and true. They can't be extricated from each other. And then I think in the gospel, Jesus Christ spells it out for us in a way which is magnificent. Because 
we know in the Old Testament, I am who am. And in the Chronicles of Narnia, the signature of God is left in every book uh, when Aslan is some means or another describes himself as I am or myself. So in The Horse and His Boy, he says, you know, who are you, says Shasta, and Aslan replies, myself, myself, myself. So myself three times, and he describes different types of voices, you know, the Spirit, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. But Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I think this is when Christ himself baptizes the transcendentals. When Christ himself says, I am the good, the true, and the beautiful. That the way is the way of goodness, the way of love, the way of virtue. That the true is the way of reason. And that the life is beauty. Beauty is the breath of life breathed into reality. And so we see Christ himself revealing himself in Trinitarian terms. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good, the true, and the beautiful. Trinity running all the way through. And then who does he create? Ferdy sets this up very nicely by talking about Genesis. He creates man in his own image. So that man is himself, in some sense, Trinitarian. And this is where the Trinity and the Incarnation also come together, both in the person of Christ and in the person of who we are as being made in the image of God. Trinitarian man made in God's image. And going back, the way, the truth, and the life, the good, the true, and the beautiful. Because we're, you know, in some sense, of course, everything that's in creation is made in God's image. It was God's imagination that brought these things into being. So when we look out the window there, and thanks be God, we do look out the movie, we can see one, because it always helps me, we see a tree. And that tree is made in the image of God, because God made the tree from his own imagination. It didn't, it wasn't, and now it is, because he imagines it into being. Which is why, by the way, that no two trees are the same. Um, you know, we, we, we mass produce chairs um, in factories, and they all, look, they, they, they all look the same, particularly if they're plastic chairs made in a mold. But we know we can identify individual human beings by their, their irises, by their fingerprints, and no two trees are the same. God loves individuals into being. He doesn't mass produce, and that applies to trees as well as human beings. But of course, we're made in the, the image of God in the way which separates us from the rest of creation. So when in Scripture that God made man in his own image, what, what, what's being said is that we are not made in the image of God in exactly the same way as trees or newts or 
stones or planets or stars are. There's something about us which separates us from the rest of his creation that makes us unique as creatures from the rest of God's creation. And that which makes us unique is the trinity that's within us, the way, the truth, and the life that's within us, the good, the true, and the beautiful that's within us. So man is a lover. And again, we, we need to understand what love is from a Christian understanding. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's not a passion. And insofar as those things might be part of it, philosophically speaking, they're accidental. At the heart of love, what the essence of love, what love is, is a choice, a rational choice to lay down ourselves for another. So, unlike the rest of the creatures, the tree does what it's designed to do. It has no freedom, no free will. Love requires freedom because it requires choice. Love requires reason because it requires a rational choice. So, in being made in God's image as lovers, we are able to transcend instinct and to freely and rationally choose to sacrifice ourselves for the other, for the beloved. Now, whether that's our spouse, our children, our enemy, our country, whatever, our God, our church. So, we made the image of God in terms of the way of goodness, the way of virtue, the way of love. We also made the image of God in the sense that we can reason, that we can actually escape from the confines and constraints of instinct and transcend that through using our reason. We don't follow appetites. We can look, look at the stars, Oscar Wilde said. We're all in the gutter, but some of us looking at the stars. When we look at the stars, we can, we can respond in various ways. We can write a sonnet to the stars. Or we can measure how far away they are and how they move in relation to the earth and what they're made of, and we can, we can quantify. But all of that requires reason, which no, no other creature uh, in the animal world has or, or, or possesses. So we're also Trinitarian in the sense that we are um, the truth, the way, the truth, and the life, and the true, the good, the true, and the beautiful. We are able to apprehend and move towards truth because we have the gift of reason. But also we made in God's image, and again, Ferdy mentions this and sets it up very well, in the sense that we have the life of the creator. We have the life of the imagination. That we can see, not just that things are, but that they are good. As God sees that they are good on the seventh day, as Ferdy said. We can see that they are not only good, but beautiful, because they have life. And one way of uh, explaining this, I, the, the, um, I, when I've taught Chesterton's orthodoxy in his chapter on the ethics of Elfland, um, he talks about the, 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 uh, the self being more distant than any star. And I say to my, 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 my students, but 
not just is the self more distant than any star, the self is actually larger than any star. That each of us as individuals is bigger than the sun. And they look at me and scratch their heads, and I say, now why might I say that? And actually, I'm normally very disappointed because people don't give me an answer that satisfies me. So, okay then, maybe I'll ask you, why is each of us bigger than the sun, more powerful than the sun? Anybody? All right. See, I'm never disappointed because I was expecting to be disappointed. I'm not disappointed. Because we can see the sun. The sun can't see us. We have life. The sun does not have life. We can measure how much distance there is between us and the sun. The sun can't do that. We can write a sonnet to the sun. We can paint sunsets. The sun can't do any of that. It's just big, and it's hot. And yes, it would kill us. But even then, it wouldn't kill us, would it? Because we have a life beyond the life that the sun can take away from us. So you begin to see, I hope, the connection between the good, the true, and the beautiful, and the way, the truth, and the life. That the imagination gives life to something. I mean, without us, the sun would exist. It's hard to imagine why God would do that. Right? God can make us the sun, but if he didn't give life to rational creatures, no one would even know the sun was there. And the sun certainly wouldn't know that the sun was there. So you see the, the connection, I hope, between the imagination and creativity and beauty and life. And you see, I hope, that how we are being made in the image of God in a way that other creatures are not made is that we are both Trinitarian, we are ourselves in some sense the way, the truth, and the life, because we are meant to be like Christ, and the more like Christ we are, the more fully human we are. So we are meant to be the way, the truth, and the life. Through being, because it's a, a simile, it's the same thing, we are meant to be the way, the truth, and the life by being the good, the true, and the beautiful. The Trinitarian man, made in God's image, as a lover, a truth seeker, and a creator. And now I want to talk about the imagination as the imagination. We go beyond as regards the imagination itself being an expression and a manifestation of the imageness of God in us. Which is why it's crucial. So again, you get, when you live in a utilitarian world at the moment where you know, people think, well, you know, let's let me train to be, I know we have a dental student here, great, we have to have, have, to have dentists or all our teeth would fall out. So, you know, dental students or engineers or, you know, all these things that are very practical. We don't need airy-fairy things like literature or the arts or the humanities. Well, first of all, the imagination is at the very heart of who we are and who we are meant to be and who we should be, as I've said. But without the imagination, 
science itself also comes to a standstill very quickly. All the breakthroughs in science have been a consequence of the imagination. So it's very practical as well as being very, if you like, abstract. So I extrapolate from Tolkien's uh, musings on, on the imagination and on Mythopoeia, so that poem that Ferdy quoted from, he, uh, Tolkien also wrote a very, or gave a very famous lecture which was published as an essay on fairy stories which, which contains a great deal of his, what I call his philosophy of myth. And again, we have to understand the, word of the use of the word myth here because in modern English it's usually used in two ways. More commonly these days, it means a lie. So there's a new book out about uh, five anti-Catholic myths, right? Slavery and Galileo and the Holocaust and whatever. Five anti-Catholic myths. In other words, five anti-Catholic lies. So the word myth is often used to mean lie, but that's not the way that Tolkien ever uses it. He comes to the, the original Greek word for myth, which means story. And a story can be a lie or a story can be true. So, uh, Tolkien's philosophy of myth, philosophia of myth, the love of wisdom to be found in story. And in that, when you extrapolate what he's getting at, he really talks about a hierarchy of creative value. And at the, at the, 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 the top of this hierarchy of creative value is the creator himself, God. And then below that is creation, those things made directly by God, those things brought into being ex nihilo, from nothing, by God. And below that is what Tolkien calls sub-creation, because for Tolkien only God is the only one who can create, because to create is to make something from nothing, to bring something into being. We can't do that. All that we can do is to make things from other things that already exist. That's what Tolkien calls it sub-creation. I usually use the example of a, a landscape artist. So a landscape artist will use his eyes, his hands, his legs, his arms, a canvas, an easel, oil paints or watercolors, paint brushes, the sky, the sun, hills, trees, maybe a building or two, maybe a cow or two. Put all those things that already exist together in something which is new because what he sub-creates, even though it consists of things that already exist, is something new because that particular landscape, that particular moment in time, as he's imagined it and brought it creatively into being, is something unique. So that's sub-creation. And then Tolkien talks... Um, well, let me be a little bit controversial here. For instance, in, in, in that essay on fairy stories, that lecture on fairy stories, he argues against the, you know, quite clearly a Marxist student of his at Oxford, who basically was pleased that a huge car factory, car, car manufacturing plant had been built right on the edge of Oxford, right close on the, to the university, so all these buildings that dedicated to learning and sciencia, knowledge, for centuries now have this modern manufacturing 
factory next to it which is making cars. And, and this Marxist was pleased because he said, this will bring Oxford closer to reality. All right, now for Tolkien, I don't really know what this Marxist student meant by reality, but he says, but to think that a car is more real than a dragon is curious. To think that a car is more real than a horse is preposterous. Right, because now again, this hierarchy of creative value, the horse is made by God. Right? It's a creature. It's part of creation. The car is made by men. It's sub-creation. It's further down. It's also an inanimate object. A horse can recognize you. It can have some sort of reaction and relationship with you. A car is never going to do that. Although many people seem to try. But what, why do you think Tolkien might say that it's curious to think that a car is more real than a dragon. Let me give you an example, by the way. This, this has made, made me roll my eyes. At some point on the overnight flight, Saturday night, coming here from, from the States, I got too tired to read, and I looked, scanned through the 150 films that were on offer, and they were all stunk. Um, either they stunk, the handful that didn't stink, I'd already seen. Um, so I ended up playing trivia right, on the, on the thing in front of me for about an interminable amount of time. Uh, and so much time that I had the top five places uh, in, in scores by the end of it. Um, but one of the questions was, you know, which of these creatures uh, never existed? And, I, and it various, various things like uh, you know, the dodo, the Tasmanian tiger. It's curious, we had a connection to Tasmania under the circumstances. You know, the Dodo, Tasmanian tiger, the woolly mammoth, and the European dragon. Curse. I rolled my eyes, but I gave them the answer I knew they wanted, which was the European dragon, right? Uh, now, if you mean, had they, the European dragon ever existed in history, in our sort of four dimensions of time and space, well, I would have to concede that there's no physical evidence of it ever having been discovered. But I also would insist that there's two, there's two ways of understanding history. There is everything that's happened in the past. That's one definition of history. The other definition of history is the record of everything that's happened in the past, which is a very, very different thing. Because the second thing only actually contains very small pieces of the, the much larger jigsaw puzzle, which is the first thing. Everything that's happened happened in the past. It's very different from everything that we've recorded as being happening in the past. So it's entirely possible, according to that, quite, that, that way of understanding things, the European dragons did exist. And one of the reasons there that dragons are in the imagination all over the place, from, from, from Europe to China, is perhaps they existed. There may be other reasons. You know, we have very powerful imaginations. But they may, they may have existed. That's why Rob Myers thought, you know, you don't know that. You're just arrogantly presuming that because you think that the, everything that's happened in the past and the record of it happened in the past are the same thing. You've conflated the two, and it's a big mistake. So anyway, Tolkien, apart from the fact that the dragon might have existed, that's not what Tolkien means. He means that, that the dragon, first of all, the dragon has been given life. 
I am the way, the truth, and the life by the human imagination. And within that life that's given to it, it is a creature that has life. Okay, it's, it's alive, and in, in many cases, it's intelligent. Dragons are often sort of demonic figures, uh, etc. So, they, the dragon is alive, much more than a car, which is very useful, and can maybe change our lives, which I'm sure is what the Marxist student means. We can do things with cars, and therefore it changes our reality. But the car, is, it doesn't matter how much the car might change reality, it's still not a living thing. Still not real life. Okay, so you see here what, what, what talk is going. So the other aspect of it then, the top of the hierarchy of creative value is the creator. And then below that we have creation, those things made directly by God, ex nihilo. And then we have sub-creation, those things made by us using our creative gifts. We're made in the image of God as creators. We use that imageness of God in us by using our imagination to bring life to new things, whether it's a landscape painting or the imag imaginative creature like Smaug in The Hobbit, to talk of dragons. But he said there's two types of sub-creation. There's sub-creation to the glory of God, which is true art, and there's sub-creation for the utility of man, for use which we might call technology. Now, I was giving a talk once, I think on Tolkien in Lisbon, in Portugal, and I got to this part about the hierarchy of creative value, and I said, you know, at the top is the creator, then there's creation, then there's sub-creation to the glory of God, art, and then there's sub-creation for the use of man, technology. That's the hierarchy. And then, Everyone started looking at each other and smirking and, and nudging each other and, 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 and laughing under their breath. Now, if you're giving a talk, two things you don't want to happen. One is you tell a joke and nobody laughs, right? You get to the punchline and there's complete stony silence. Not good, right? But the other is when you don't tell a joke and everybody laughs. And that's what happened. I thought, why? I haven't said anything funny. I mean, they said, excuse me, why is it? Why you were laughing? I wasn't aware that I said a joke. And they said, well, you know, you've had the creator at the top, and then creation, and sub-creation of the glory of God, art, and sub-creation of the use of man, technology. And they said, this is an engineering school. So all the students were actually engineers. And I'd, I'd consigned them to the bottom of the pile, all right? And so they thought that was, they were Christians, that's why they were at the talk, but they thought it was funny. And I, what I said to them, yes, but you have to understand that this is a hierarchy of goods. It's not that the thing at the bottom is not good. I said, for instance, you're all sitting there in front of me, and thanks be to God, you're all wearing clothes, all right? You're not all there naked, right? Thanks be to God, there's a roof over our head that we have heating or cooling, whatever time of the year it was, all right? That technology is a good thing. We need shelter. We need food. We, there's nothing wrong with any of that. But the, the hierarchy is just to make sure that we have an ordered way of seeing this. That we use our sub-creative gifts. No sub-creative gifts are goods. But obviously it's better in the hierarchy of things to use our 
gifts to the glory of God than merely for our own use. Although we do have to spend time doing things such as eating to keep us going, to keep us alive, okay? Now let me give you an example of how that nice, neat order of that hierarchy can be overthrown or usurped. Let's be revolutionary. So there's, again, just to reiterate, the creator at the top, then there's creation, then there's sub-creation to the glory of God and sub-creation for the use of man. But there's a way in which we as human beings can improve upon God's creation. We can make God's creation better. Now that sounds blasphemous, just don't hold your stones at the moment, don't start casting them. I'm going to tell you a story. And all stories begin, of course, with once upon a time. Once upon a time, there was a rock. And it was a really beautiful rock. One of the most beautiful rocks that had ever been seen. Except the tragedy was that it had never been seen was a hidden rock, because it was under the ground. And then by the use of sub-creation for the use of man, by technology, it was dug up. The rock was dug up, and for the first time after being under the ground, out of sight for millions of years, this beautiful thing could be seen. That's good in itself. And people looked at it and said, that is indeed a very beautiful rock. But then one person came along who was, could see better than the others. So that's not just a beautiful rock. That is the beautiful rock. And he used his sub-creative gifts to start doing things with the rock. And these days, if you go to St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, and you go through the main entrance to St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, and you turn to the right as you go through, you'll see Michelangelo's Pieta, the mother of God with the dead Christ on her lap. That's what someone using their sub-creative gifts to the glory of God did with that beautiful rock. And for hundreds of years, that beautiful rock has been a source and a cause of prayer. Because if the definition of prayer is to raise up the mind and the heart to God, everybody who's seen that has had that experience, whether they're atheists, agnostics, Muslims, Protestants or Catholics. They see the beauty of that, not just the beauty of the art, but the beauty of what the art signifies, a mother cradling her dead son, and their hearts and minds are edified and lifted up into the presence of the real, which is, of course, God. So that has been a catalyst for prayer for centuries. So you see how, by using our sub-creative gifts, first of all, by quarrying, by technology, and then through the great artistic gifts of Michelangelo, that we improved upon God's creation. This rock became something more than it was 
in the way that God made it. And of course, it's not blasphemous because Michelangelo could only do that because of the way that God made Michelangelo. As someone who has the subcreative gifts to make something beautiful, something alive, from a dead rock, because it's the beauty that gives life to that rock, right? Okay, so that's some of the theology and philosophy behind the imagination and we as human beings, as creators or sub-creators. And I want to talk about move from beauty as part of that trinity to, uh, to art, the humanities and literature. Now, it's been said quite truly that art holds up a mirror to man, shows us ourselves. So Plato, who didn't really see things as well as he should, he's brilliant in many ways, now, saw art as a, an imitation of life, and as life, in Plato's view, was not really full reality, that, you know, that basically that it, it's a shadow of something, the, the, of the forms that are beyond it. It's an imitation of, of something which itself an imitation. So a shadow of a shadow, something which is less real. And that's not the way, of course, we've been talking about it, about it here. It's not a platonic view of beauty, it's a Christian view of beauty. Aristotle in his Poetics went, disagreed with Plato. He said, because it's not just an imitation, it's a mirror. It doesn't just imitate, it shows. It teaches, and of course Hamnet says the same thing, mirror to man, and Tolkien in that lecture on fairy stories says that art holds up uh, a mirror to man, mirror de l'homme. Uh, he's obviously quoting from some French text. He doesn't give, I don't think he quotes the source. Um, so what it does is show us ourselves. And one of the tragedies about the humanities being exorcised from the academy is that the humanities show us our humanity. And once that, those humanities are exercise from education, education itself become inhumane and ultimately unhuman. So the humanities show us ourselves, they show us our humanity. They show us who we are. So where I'd like to move now is show us who we are, who are we? Now, I would say that there are three essential ways of seeing who we are, all of which are true. But let's begin with what we're not. We are not homo sapiens. Sorry for you scientists that have that nice neat label for us. Homo sapiens is one thing we are not. First, it's a very, very modern term for who we are. It's only 200 years old. The earliest known usage of the phrase homo sapiens is early 1800s. But also, it's a, it's a moronic way of describing who we are, because homo sapiens means wise man. Now, if you understand the history of humanity, one of the defining characteristics of who we are as a species is not wisdom. 
right? Generally speaking, as a species, we make the same dumb mistakes in every generation from the first day to the most recent day. We never learn. Part of the reason, by the way, is because we never learn the humanities. We have an ignorance of history, therefore we don't see this repeating pattern of stupidity because we're, because we're stupid, <laughs> because we're too ignorant to see it, because we don't understand history, we don't understand art, we don't see the lessons that the great works of literature show us about who we are, and so we make the same dumb mistakes as previous generations through our ignorance. So homo sapiens is a dumb word for who we are. In actual fact, it's also bad English and bad Latin because that's not even what the scientists mean. You know, because science, you know, insofar as it's empirical, empiricist, it's not interested in wisdom. That's something which is metaphysics. It's something, not physics. It's something which is beyond the scope of what, um, of what science does, the physical sciences, what they do. What they really meant is that we are clever, not wise, right? We're smarter than the apes. We make tools. What they really mean is that we are creative in that sub-creative technological sense. I don't know what the word, I think there might be some connected, I'm not, I'm not a Latinist, I'm not a classicist. We have some classicists here, but I won't put you on the spot. You come whisper it in my ear later. But uh, I, I think that the word they're looking for is something like homo faber. That might be the wrong grammar. You know, man, the, 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 the fabricator, not maker in the bigger sense of creator but man, the fabricator, or homo, to mix Latin and, and Greek, homo techni, okay? Technological man. But we're clever, we're smart, we know how to think about and devise tools that we then use. And that because we use these tools, we then have an advantage over other creatures such as the chimpanzees, and therefore we, that's what makes us who we are. We are clever man, or technological man, or fabricating man. Um, so we're not homo sapiens, so let's, get, let's strike that from who we are. The other thing we're not, which is a, a, a view of us, which is very widely held in our culture, nor are we homo economicus. Right, they're basically homo economicus. Well, that's, a, that's um, an oxymoron. So uh, I'm not going to use that. that, that that's what they, it's, like, it's like the Enlightenment calling itself the Enlightenment, right? Um, you know, which means basically the whole world was dark until they came along. So it's just the, uh, um, I called it in my, in my most recent book, Literature with Every Catholic Should Know, I called it the Disenchantment, which is a better name for it, because the, the cosmos is enchanted. It's, it's sung into being by a, creator, by a creator God who's the composer of the cosmos. Um, and that's an enchanted cosmos. And then we have with the Enlightenment, so-called, or it's usually, usually prefixed the Enlightenment, the superciliously self-named Enlightenment, to make put it. I know, I know. Okay, all right. Well, that's, that's fine. But uh, you, don't, you don't have to say that, you, you don't have to say that, that homo economicus rationalis is an oxymoron for them either. But that's a, uh, um, so we're not homo economicus. In other words, we're not motivated purely by greedy self-interest and all we're really interested in is gaining creature comforts, security, um, having a life of, uh, not leisure in a good sense of the word, having a, a life of, of uh, laziness, self-indulgence, uh, self-gratification, 
Um, so we're not homo economicus. I mean, some of us might be, but that's because we're one of the other three things. I mean, I'll come to that in a moment. Homo economicus is a consequence of something which is much deeper. So we're not homo economicus and we're not um, uh, homo sapiens. So what, what are we? Well, the first thing we are, we're going to switch from Latin to Greek. Yeah, from Plato and Aquinas talk about the way that we are anthropos. From when we get that thing, the Greek word for man, from where we get words like anthropology. And according to Plato, the etymology of that, I mean, modern, again, modern, modern etymologists argue against it. I don't see how convincingly, because it seems to me that Plato was closer to the Greek language, closer to the roots of the Greek language than they are. Um, but, but Plato says that the etymology of, uh, of anthropos is uplooko, or he who looks up. So in other words, what defines us and differentiates us from the rest of the cosmos is the fact that we transcend and go beyond our instinct to look up and beyond, to gaze in wonder at the cosmos. The way I sometimes put this is the animal grazes, but man gazes. In other words, the animal looks down because he is confined or it is confined and constrained by its instinct. It just is what it is because that's what it was designed to be. It can't be anything else. We, on the other hand, we do graze. Right? We do have uh, physical and animal appetites we have to satisfy or we die. But that's not all we do. We can look up from the grazing and we can gaze. Again, back to to Oscar Wilde's phrase, we're all in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars. So we are meant to be that which escapes from mere instinct to wonder at the cosmos. Now, the way that Aquinas, who develops this in the Summa, puts it, I think this is at the heart of who we are, or certainly of who we're meant to be, who we were made to be. He says in the Summa, basically, this is a way of describing anthropos, that perception, so perceiving the real, begins with virtue. It actually begins with the virtue of humility. And I'm going to be a little bit controversial again here because it's fun to be controversial. You know, because St. Paul tells us that the greatest of the virtues is love. And, of course, I'm not going to say that St. Paul's wrong, because that would make me a heretic, right? But I would like to say that, yes, St. Paul's right, but there's another aspect of things as well, which are also true. That if the, the first and the worst of sins is pride, then the absence or the antidote to that sin, humility, is surely in its own sense, the greatest of the virtues. Because if pride is the cause of all problems, humility is the solution to that problem. And indeed, if Adam and Eve had humility, they would not actually have fallen. Yes?
Well, yes, but if it's a, if it's a, if if it, if it's an if it's a necessary prerequisite for it, I mean, I suppose to be the way we can get round this is is by retreating into paradox, and say the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Okay, so let's say that the that love is the first and humility is the last, but the first shall be last and the last shall be first. So, um, um, so. But the path of perception begins with humility. And also say by the way, love, as, as you said, love is actually impossible without humility. Because love is to freely choose to sacrifice yourself for the beloved. In other words, it's free to freely choose to put yourself second. Right? And pride is freely choosing to put yourself first. So in other words, you can say, I suppose, if you wanted to try to get around this, they're really synonymous. Right? They're so inseparable, they're the same thing. All right? So... Perception begins with humility. And then the fruit, the fruit of humility is gratitude. That we look up from our grazing and we start gazing, and like God, we see that it is good. So the fruit of humility is gratitude. And then the fruit of gratitude is wonder. You look up, you see that it's good, grateful for its good, and you wonder at why we deserve something as good as this. As Chesterton says, we don't live in the best of all possible worlds. We live in the best of all impossible worlds. No, every tree on, every leaf on that tree out there is a miracle. Every grain of dust is a miracle. And then when you have humility and the gratitude of the fruit of humility, you see the cosmos with that sense of wonder that sees it as being miraculous. And, and St. Thomas tells us that, that from that sense of wonder, we are led to contemplation, contemplatio, and it's that contemplation that bears the fruit of dilatatio, dilation, the opening of the mind and the heart into the fullness of reality. That's anthropos a Thomistic nutshell. Humility, gratitude, wonder, contemplation, dilation. So that's who we are, anthropos, in the sense that it's who we are, it's who we're meant to be. That's not necessarily always who we are, right? Because we're not, we don't always have that humility that enables the rest to happen. So the other thing that we are, now we do go back to Latin, is homo superbus. We are proud man. And it's Alexander Solzhenitsyn says that the battle between good and evil takes place in the heart of every man. That's where the battlefield is. Each of us as individuals is fighting that war between anthropos, humble man, Homo superbus, proud man. So that's the tension that we see in life, and it's the tension we see in literature. This tension between the anthropos we're called to be and the homo superbus that prevents the call from being answered. Or at least hampers and hinders it. But there is a third, I said there's three, there's a third uh, understanding of who we are, third label. And this is where, if you like, the theological and philosophical underpinnings of literature really come into play. 
we are homo viator. That's man on a journey. Journeying man, traveling man, pilgrim man. Man on a quest. In other words, each of our lives individually is a journey with a purpose. And we all have the same purpose and we're all called to take the same journey, though the path might be different. In fact, the path will be uniquely different for all of us. But the, the end of the journey, like the path to Rome, as in Belloc's book, is the path to heaven. We are called to paradise. God is calling us home. Homo viator is the journey home. Now, if that's the case, then if we are homo viator, each of our lives individually is a life journey and also and therefore a life story. That all of us is living a story or living a myth in the Greek word for story, Tolkien's understanding of the word. And therefore, if each of us individually is living in a story, our own story, we're also part of the bigger story. All of our neighbors, past, present, and future. The story, which is history, which is his story. So you begin to see now how we are actually part of the great story. There's a Hollywood film, The Greatest Story Ever Told, which is about the life of Christ. And it's true. The greatest story ever told is then God's story, which is his story, and within that story, salvation history. And God himself, the author, enters the story and changes the story by entering it redeems it, anoints it, baptizes it. So if you see who we are now, those three things, anthropos, and certainly in literature, anthropos is most obviously present in great poetry. Well, we'll look, for instance, at the poetry of Jeremy Hopkins later this week. And Hopkins is anthropos par excellence. You know, one who looks up and sees in creation the grandeur of God. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will shine out like shining from silk foil. Right? Anthropos. But then Homo viator and Homo superbus are battling it out in every story that's told, beginning with our own individual stories. That battle to the death between Homo viator and Homo superbus. Okay, so now, that being so, you can see, I hope now, from the theology of, of you know, why the imagination is, is the beauty in the good, the true, and the beautiful, and the life in the way, the truth, and the life, there's a procreative aspect to the imagination. It's a marriage, and I'll come to that in a moment. In some ways, by the way, I talk about the good, the true, and the beautiful. Uh, one of these days, I'm going to articulate this in a way that, that's coherent, so I'm just... I'm already confessing to you that what's going to follow is going to be incoherent. Um, but, you know, that it, we talk about the good, the true, and the beautiful. Um, I think you know, we talk about the, the good as being 
you know, love, virtue, the heart, the true ratio, reason, the head, but the life or the beauty is the loins. There's something procreative about the art of the imagination, or about the imagination, the art it produces. Now, let me, um, I was gonna, if we had a whiteboard or blackboard, this is probably where I would start using it, but you can use your imaginations. We can have an, we can have an, ima we can have an imagine, imaginary blackboard now, okay? And I'm gonna write in this imaginary blackboard, and you're gonna see what I'm gonna write because you're gonna use your imaginations. But, um, you, no, not interrupting. I, I, just, I, want, I want to reiterate, by the way, please raise your hands if you want me to, uh, uh, oh yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, if you want me to, 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 to stop, just raise your hand and I, I'm happy to do so. So please, please. So Maximilian and Colby will talk about the Holy Spirit as the uncreated Immaculate Conception and the Blessed Mother as being the created Immaculate Conception. So it would seem to me that in your articulation of this that you would use a less carnal term than loins, and that you just say heart, head, and spirit, which is essentially that binding of the three cords, which is marriage, right? The, the, the bond of three cords, which is not easily broken, because the Holy Spirit is... I, 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 I'm very happy to accept that as an alternative metaphor, but I'm not willing to accept there's anything wrong with the, uh, the carnal, the incarnational aspect of the loins, because uh, the procreative aspect of marriage requires loins. Um, so, uh, so yeah, but both, they both work. I have no, no problem with that. Um, so now, we're using our imaginary blackboard. Um, what is the creative process? Well, I would say there is, it's a marriage. You have, if you like, the father of the gift, who's God. And then you have the mother of the gift, the artist and those two coming together produce the child, which is the work. So, let's go back a bit. So the part that's the father of the gift, right? that which is supernatural, that which is ultimately divine, that which is the imageness of God in us. Um, the pagans, and we we'll begin get to those in the next session, were grappling with this, and I think very manfully and well, when um, they talked about the muses. So the, the Homer begins the Iliad with sing muse. In other words, he begins with a prayer. He needs the creative gift of the divine to enter him so that he can tell the story truly and well. Because without that grace, it's not possible. So we can use, I think, interchangeably, the pagan word, the muse, or the muses, the word inspiration, you heard the word spirit, the word inspiration, or grace. I think all of those words are, we can use interchangeably as this gift, and it's a gift because it's given from God to the artist. But this is distinct from the other sort of gift that the artist possesses. In other words, he doesn't have to ask for it, sing muse, please give me this inspiration. He has it anyway, and that's what, um, that, that gift which is sometimes called talent, or the talents. Again, the parable of the talents from the gospel. You know, some are given two, some are given three, some are given five. Is it, was it one, one, two, and five? Oh good, we're Catholics, none of us know. All right, um, <laughs> I 
we're given, we're given, we're given various number of talents, right? And five is the most. And, and there's a responsibility. If you've given five talents, you're meant to um, do great things with them. You're not meant to just sit on it. Let's still, let's still bury it, okay? But even if you have one talent, you're not meant to bury it. Right? You use the talent you have. And we're all given different amounts of talents in different sorts of things. So some of us are never going to be, write, be able to write a good novel. Right? It doesn't matter how much we pray for the inspiration. Because we haven't been given the talent. Or enough of the talents to be able to do that. But God has given us other talents. And one of, the, one of the, the, the discerning aspects of life is to work out what our talents are and to maximize our impact as lovers of God and neighbor by employing those talents well. One thing we don't want to be doing is having this of idea that I'm going to be a great novelist when you have one talent, not five, and spend lots of time. By the way, I speak as somebody who's read many, many, well, who's been asked to read many, many really, really bad manuscripts of novels, all right? They're out there. And it's not only one of the least lovable parts of my job is telling somebody. Because, yeah, by the time they send you a finished manuscript, they've spent hours and hours and days and days and weeks and weeks pouring themselves into this. You know, and, and really, they should have been pouring themselves into something else. Because they, whatever talents they have, this isn't it. Right? And they were wasting their time. We'll say one other thing here as well, because um, as a tangent, which I think is relevant to uh, the life of contemplation, which is at the heart of what we're talking about. And that's time. Because the one thing you can't do with time is make it. Let's make some time for that. As Jeremy Hopkins says, we are all soft sift in an hourglass. In other words, each of us has our own hourglass, and we only have a certain amount of sand of time in that hourglass, and it's sifting through, and there's nothing we can do to stop it. And when our amount of, our, of sand has passed through, we are gone from this life. So we can't make time. So the only choice we have is we can either take time or we can waste time. And taking time is at the heart of a good life and wasting time is the heart of a bad life. That's why, for instance, Anthropos, he's not going to be so busy that he's not going to go out in the morning and, and spend moments watching the sunrise and the light change on the on the trees and the landscape, because that's time taken in contemplation and dilation. It's going to set you up for the day. It's much more important than answering that email 10 minutes earlier. Okay, time taken, time wasted. All part of this, this life of contemplation, this life of, of, of the imagination that we're talking about here. So, we have this, the muse, the inspiration, and the grace, that's the gift given to the artist who uses his talents, inspired by that gift, to produce a child, which is the work of art.
Now there's um, an objection that you should be giving. Well, this is all very well, but what about bad art? Why can there be so much bad art? If this hierarchy of creative value, if we talk about the imagination and sub-creations of the glory of God, that's what we are supposed to be doing with the gift of the imagination. Why is there so much bad art? Well, why does God allow bad art? How can there be bad art if it's a gift from God? Is God giving bad gifts to people? What? Clearly not. So what's happening, of course, is this gift is pure. In fact, this gift is holy. And even the atheist Percy Shelley, in, in his essay, A Defense of Poetry, talks about the, and he's, you know, even as an atheist, he knows there's something mysterious that happens in the creative process as a poet. And he says that the, the, the gift, when it comes, is like a, a burning coal. And as the poet begins to take that burning coal, it's a fading coal. It's dying already as he touches it, as he works with it. So there's something, and it, it, when that gift enters who we are as human beings, that gift, that gift then joins that struggle within who we are as human beings, between Anthropos and Homo viatum on the one hand, and Homo superbus on the other. And if Homo superbus is the dominant force in the life of that artist, those gifts, which are great gifts, if you, this, this artist might have five talents, because he was born with those five talents, but because of his pride, He's taken the purity of the muse, the purity of the grace, the inspiration, and doing prideful things with that, casting his pearls before swine. And they might still be pearls, in the sense that, in, ter in terms of works of art, in terms of literature, could be beautifully written, in terms of visual artists, arts, they could be beautifully painted, because the five talents are still there. They've not been taken away. That they're being used for evil purposes. Now, you might think, well, that's, I, I don't like that. That doesn't sound good. But let's use the analogy. Because there's, there's a direct analogy between the gifts that God gives in the imagination, the creative gifts he gives, and the gift of life, which is also a gift freely given to all of us, our own soft sift in an hourglass, and God does not snatch it away or take it away the first time we sin. If we abuse the gift of life, God doesn't remove the gift. So if we abuse the gift of the imagination, God does not abuse, remove the gift. We are, of course, morally responsible for what we do with the gift when it's given. So bad art is actually the, the uh, abuse of the gift. Good art, the art to the glory of God, is an act of sacrifice on the part of the artist in giving back to the giver of the gift the fruit of the gift given. Giving back to the giver of the gift the fruit of the gift given. So you get this great gift from him, you treat it with reverence, you do beautiful things with it, and then you offer it back. That's what true art is, or is meant to be. 
in that sense that true art is an act of worship. That an act of worship is never a waste of time, right? Now, yes, please. Atheist artist as well, who certainly wouldn't consciously be creating art to the glory of God. Or someone sort of designing something to make money. How would that fit in with your logic? Well, if, if the artist uh, is, um, what, what, what do you want to make him? Do you want to make him an architect? An atheist architect? All right, we'll make him an atheist. We're now going to tell a story. It's good, see, this is good. Um, so we, so, we, so, we, so we have an atheist artist, atheist architect, and he's got, been given five talents. I think we're going to assume he's a good ar ar architect, okay? Um, he's been given five talents by God. He uses those five talents well in the sense he becomes good at it, right, um, as an architect. Um, and yet, um, he can be motivated by two things that will pollute and contort the beauty of the, of the product of those five talents. One, and it's ultimately homo superbus, he can either sell himself, uh, prostitute himself, in other words, do it for money, uh, and therefore be compromising certain aspects of beauty to maximize the amount of money he'll make. Okay, so then you've got that compromise going on. Um, and or he will become a slave to certain homo superbus ideologies such as brutalism, and use his five talents of artistic gift to produce things that are self-consciously and deliberately propagandistically ugly. Um, so that would be an example, all right? Um, then there are others, that are atheist that just loves beauty uh, for its own sake, and in that sense it's pure in, the, in his use of the five talents, will make beautiful things. It's not it's impossible because he might actually have humility with respect to the way he practices or uses his art, his talents. Um, so a perfect example of that would be Shelley, right? Now Shelley was an atheist and a proud man and a mess, messed up man in, any, in many ways, but if anybody, maybe we'll look at this somewhat on whenever we get to the Romantic Poets. If anybody's read his, his wonderful poem, To a Skylark, you know, this is, this is an atheist who's actually really challenging his own atheism. Because he's basically saying, anything that can sing as beautiful as, beautifully as that transcends anything I am and transcends any ability I have to express it. The beauty just literally takes his breath away and, I say, takes his words away, so he says, but he writes his best poem about it. Um, so you know, this is, this is a, a, an atheist who, in a spirit of wonder, because that, certainly the moment he wrote that poem, well, the moment he, moment, well, the moment he heard the skylark, I should say, actually, um, and that burning cold of that moment of, of dilation remained strong enough for, it, for the composition of the poem. The moment that the atheist heard the beauty of the bird song, um, he had enough humility for that, that wonder, that contemplation, that dilation to happen, and the fruit of that anthropos, that man fully was that wonderful work of art, even though he was an atheist. So that would be an, an example of that. Another example I give would be... Um, oh, haven't I? Sorry. Well, uh, well, yes. I mean, in the, sense, in the sense that God can and does often bring good out of evil, right? Now, is, is, he, is he done to the glory of God in the sense that he's going to get, 
what's the word I'm looking for? Is, is anything meritorious in, in him? I would say yes, because I think that it's a fruit of humility. And even if, you know, there's an aspect of his ratio, right, of his reason that says, oh, I don't believe in God, therefore this can't be a gift from God. The point is that he was actually the recipient of a gift from God, the gift of humility, and responded to that gift of God, even though he did not know that the, that the gift was from God, and responded appropriately in producing a, a, a work of humility, the great work of art. So he hasn't consciously done it for the glory of God, but he's glorified God in it, and he's glorified God in it because of the virtue he practiced even though he doesn't know he has to thank God for it. Does that answer your question? Right. <laughs> so where were we? Um, all right, I'm going to move on just a second to the last part. We've got about 20 minutes left. Uh, but I would say as well about, about art, and, you know, people say about books, and what sort of books should I read? Which probably applies to other art, but we're, th we're thinking about books. I said, well, there are... There are four types of books. There are good, good books. There are good, bad books. There are bad, good books. And there are bad, bad books. So the no-brainer is read the good, good books and don't read the bad, bad books. But the dilemma is in the, in the middle. So what's the difference between a good, bad book and a bad, good book? Well, a good, bad book is a book that's good in morality and bad in art. Right? And I've read many of those, or I've been asked to read many of those. Right? Pious works of Christian fiction. Right? It's really bad a story, and it's just basically preaching at you in every page. And bad art, good morals. Should you read a good, bad book? I would have thought there are so many good, good books out there, why would you waste your time? But that doesn't matter. And then the other is um, the bad, good book. Right? Which is uh, good as art but bad as morality. Now, should you read those books? And I would, I would really suppose that's, that, that's the difficult one. Um, let me give you an example. Um, I, I, James Joyce, Portrait of the Artist, a young man. Um, very well written. He's obviously a man gifted with five talents. And yet that book is ultimately... James Joyce's conversion from struggling Catholic kid to proud young adult who turns his back on God. So it's the reverse of a conversion story. It's a conversion to pride, and it ends with just a, a glorious hymn to pride itself. Almost satanic. And let me give you an example of the dilemma I faced, because I was teaching taught for many years at Ave Maria University in Florida, 20th century literature to seniors, to undergraduate seniors. And some of my colleagues complained that I wasn't teaching James Joyce or Franz Kafka. And their rationale was that if any of our students go on to grad school, and they, don't, they haven't read James Joyce or Franz Kafka, they're going to be laughed at because everybody else is reading it, right? My argument against that was that I have 30 students in this class, maybe two will go to grad school. I'd rather set them a private study of reading Kafka and Joyce and let me teach whatever I'm teaching in this place because you have to drop two, two good books, two good, good books to teach the two 
bad good books. Um, but nonetheless, my colleagues prevailed, and I, and I taught Joyce and Kafka for several years. Right? Um, so that, that, that's, that's the sort of a dilemma, and I, I'm going to leave that to your unconsciousness as to how much time you want to spend reading good books that, that, are, that are bad in terms of morality. Good art, bad morality. You know, so homo superbus taking the gifts and doing things with the, those gifts that are perhaps inappropriate, at least not, not giving glory to God. All right, now I want to talk about ways of reading literature for the last 15 minutes because we're going to spend the rest of the week, next nine sessions, looking at some of the great works of the Western canon. I think it would be good to have some of the tools we need to do that, so how to read literarily. And the first thing we have to come to grips with is allegory, and what allegory is and what allegory isn't. So I usually quote Tolkien on this, because Tolkien contradicts himself. Um, so, for instance, Tolkien says in one of his letters, that I despise allegory in all of its forms. In other words, I don't like allegory, period. Right, of course, that's important because if you despise allegory in all of its forms, the Lord of the Rings is not an allegory. So all the talk about, the, 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 as the Catholic Church has never mentioned the Lord of the Rings, and it's not allegorical, clearly you can't say it's a Catholic work in terms of meaning. So I despise allegory in all of its forms. And yet, in a, another letter, he's asked by someone, is the Lord of the Rings an allegory of atomic power? And he writes back saying, no, but it is an allegory of power, particularly power usurped for domination, but more than that, it's an allegory of life and death. Um, so, uh, here he says the Lord of the, you know, he despises allegory in all its forms, here he says the Lord of the Rings it is an allegory. So, there's two options here. Tolkien's an idiot and doesn't know what he's talking about. Now, as he was a, you know, an academic philologist at Oxford University, philologist, a lover of words, somebody who understands language from the, from the, uh, the, the intricacy of the meaning of the, and the roots and the history of words outwards and upwards, it's clearly that he doesn't know what he's talking about. So the only other alternative is he's using the same word with two different meanings. Okay, he's using allegory in one sense over here and he's using it in a different sense here. So, he despises allegory, he's used the word in all its forms, that is just a faux pas, because that's not what he means. But over here, he's using it in a positive sense. So let me talk about it. What, Lewis, what Tolkien and Lewis both did not like at all is formal or crude allegory. And a, a, a formal or crude allegory is an allegory that employs personified abstraction. So the best way to describe a sort of an abstraction, because it gets a bit wordy if you try to sort of, because it's, it's very much an abstraction, uh, if you try to actually um, express it. So I'll give examples. So a personified abstraction is where basically you, you, you anthropomorphize an idea. Um, you give, a, give it a human, uh, not even form, because there's no real form to the humanity of it. It's just a human shape. So the obvious examples from history, in Boethius, Boethius in the Constellation of Philosophy, is visited by the lady philosophy. Now, we don't know or care whether the lady philosophy prefers red wine or white wine or tea or coffee because she's not a full human person. She's merely a personified abstraction. She's only there to represent the thing, philosophy. Um, so, a, another example is in, in C.S. Lewis's The Pilgrim's Regress, 
John, who's the everyman figure, is taken prisoner by a monster called the Spirit of the Age. And he's in this prison. The Spirit of the Age is put in there. He can't get out of the prison by himself. But then he's saved from this prison that the Spirit of the Age has put him in by a beautiful woman in shining armor on a horse. And her name is Reason. And Reason, we are told, has two younger sisters, philosophy and theology. And again, you know, that's not, that's not a real woman, right? He's, he's really talking about Reason is so beautiful, we, we can see it like a knight in shining armor and a beautiful woman because it's a beautiful thing. But we don't really care whether the, because it's not a real woman, we don't care whether she likes tea or coffee, right? Because I mean, that's not a, she doesn't have a personality, she represents an idea. So that's the sort of allegory that Tolkien and Lewis did not like at all. But the other extreme, the word allegory from the Greek comes from alos, which means other, and agoria, which means speaking. So an allegory is anything which speaks of something else. Now on that level, as uh, um, St. Augustine shows us in... uh, on Christian doctrine, every word is an allegory. Because Augustine talks about two types of signs. A sign is something that signifies something else. So every sign is an allegory. There are natural signs. And the examples he uses is smoke. When you see smoke, although you can't see fire, the smoke is a natural sign that signifies fire. Or if you see an animal track, you're not actually seeing the deer walking the animal walking, but you know an animal's been there and what sort of animal it is by the indentation in the mud. It's a natural sign that points to something else. And he said then then there are conventional signs, in other words, signs that we use, we invent for our own usage, and the most obvious of those are words. And every word is an allegory. So for instance, if you don't speak English, and I utter a a monosyllabic grunt, because that's probably what it will sound like if you don't speak English, and I say, dog, right? You, you won't understand what I'm saying, right? I've just grunted at you. But if you understand the signs, you have in your imagination a vision of a four-legged canine. I've just put that idea in your head by, by grunting that sound, which is an allegory. It signifies the thing, if you speak the language. If it, if it doesn't, it doesn't. The same thing with the shape. If I had a blackboard here, I imagine a blackboard I was to go like that and, and draw a vertical line, and I said, what have I just drawn? You'd say, a vertical line. Then if I were to draw a, a large part of a circle, so that that line dissects and not the rest of it, uh, you wouldn't say, you've just drawn a vertical line, now you've done, now you've done sort of the, if you're a geometrist, you'd even give me the proper name for it, which part of the circle that's being intersected uh, by the vertical line, you say, D, because you'd actually see the letter. In other words, you're thinking allegorically. You're not thinking literally. Literally, it's two shapes. But allegorically, it's D, then I'll put an O and a G behind it. Beside it, those shapes put together, you're again seeing that four-legged canine. I reverse those three letters, you're seeing God, which is something very different. If I capitalize the G or lowercase g, you're seeing two different types of God, right? So, so in other words, that, that at the most basic level, we can't even think without the use of allegory. Uh, you would not be able to understand anything that I'm saying without, already we have between us passed 
tens of thousands of allegories in the last hour and 10 minutes, hour and 20 minutes. So, so we had these two extremes of the spectrum. Formal accrued allegory, uh, the, 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 the has personified abstraction that Tolkien and Lewis despised. The reason they despise it, by the way, is it, it actually dominates the reader. That they, they actually love the imagination because it's a gift from God, and they want the imagination to be able to have the power of God. But if the, te- if the, if the writer of a formal allegory is really only interested in teaching and preaching a lesson to the reader, that gift of the imagination is stifled. Because we can only see what, exactly what the author of the former allegory wants us to see. Now, there are other types of allegory. One is uh, the, the four levels of scripture. Uh, the way that St. Thomas Aquinas tells us about the way of reading scripture with four levels. The lowest level is the literal meaning of the text, what the text is actually saying. And then above that, there are three, le- three separate levels of allegorical meaning, three different types of allegorical reading. And clearly, by the way, Tolkien doesn't despise this way of reading scripture. He's a Catholic, right? And an admirer of, of Aquinas. Three levels of allegorical meaning. So the allegoric, just called the allegorical, is the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So basically, you should always read the Old Testament in the light of the New. So the Old Testament, if you like, is foreshadowing the New. So you read the one in relation to the other. The, the, the Old Testament is an allegory of, the, the, of its fulfillment in the New Testament. That's the allegorical connection. And above that, the next level of allegorical meaning is the moral meaning of the text. In other words, how does this allegorical connection relate to me and my life? How do I put this into practice? And then above that, on the, de- on the, high, well, the fourth level, is the anagogical meaning, which is how do these things relate to eternity? my eternal soul, to death, judgment, heaven, and hell. So four levels of meaning. One level of literal meaning, three levels of allegorical meaning. How Aquinas says we should read scripture. Now, although Dante argues that uh, the Divine Comedy could and should be read in that way, and I'm going to maybe discuss that a bit when we get to Dante, um, generally speaking, I've I've had discussions with with colleagues who claim you should read Shakespeare that way. In other words, there are people that try to apply this Thomistic way of reading scripture to literature more broadly, and I think that can be problematic. So I want to just conclude very briefly by, really as we began with, uh, with uh, quickly going through some of the great works from the perspective of the sort of allegory you find in them. And in most of them, you get what Tolkien calls applicability. So the difference between a formal allegory, which has a personified abstraction, which, which dominates your imagination and makes you see what the author wants you to see. Applicability is where the imagination is, is being let loose, right, within the work, because of the power of God that's inherent within it, controlled, of course, by the, 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 the technique, the artistry of the, of the artist. But within that story, there are moments of applicability. In other words, that what happens in the story can be applied beyond the story. So we see what's happening in the story as being applicable to our own lives or to the world in which we live. So we learn lessons about our world from reading about that world, this, this connection of applicability, which is an allegorical connection. It's something which speaks applicably of something else. So, for instance, just going through the works quickly. I won't talk about in what sense, but we... we, we most of these, applicability is the sort of allegory we're going to be looking at. So in the Iliad, 
the Odyssey, and Antigone, um, Oedipus, uh, sorry, Sophocles, Oedipus cycle, the Aeneid by Virgil, all points of applicability. So that's the, that's the method or the modus operandi, if you like, we'll be using in the following classes. How is there meaning in these works that's applicable to the world beyond this? What is the author saying which is universally applicable? It's not just about uh, Achilles and Hector. It's something which we can read two and a half thousand years later and apply it to the world in which we find ourselves or to our own heart and soul. But then we have Boethius, we're talking about formal allegory. Now in Beowulf, we'll talk about this more, Beowulf uses a technique, the Beowulf poet, not Beowulf, he's a character, the Beowulf poet uses a technique which Tolkien uses also. Tolkien was hugely influenced by Beowulf. He translated the whole poem. He wrote was many people to be considered the definitive seminal essay on the poem, The Monster and the Critics. Tolkien's an expert on Beowulf. He uses the same literary device, the same allegorical technique in The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit um, that um, uh, the Beowulf poet uses. And all I'm going to say here is they are numerical signifiers. He uses numbers to actually point to meanings beyond the text in a pretty subtle way. Um, and the other thing, Dante, of course, and then Shakespeare. Um, I'm going to finish with Shakespeare for the time being, because we, we are just about out of time. Um, something we see in Shakespeare, and we see in T.S. Eliot, and we see it in, in, lot, in loads of works, is something intertextuality. And this is something else you know, if you want to, to give you a weapon, if that's the right word, a tool to, under, to read literarily, to, see, to read literature in a way that brings it fully to life. Intertextuality is when an author, in a poem or, 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 or a novel or an epic, uh, refers to another work beyond itself. So in referring to that other work, if you are literate enough to know the other work, the whole of the other work's multifarious layers of applicability come into play with just the mention of it in this work. So it's how a work can actually be brought to life multidimensionally just by mentioning a, another text. And again, I'll explain how Shakespeare does it wonderfully, other people do it. Um, so I'll, uh, I'll show that when we get there. And just finally, this is more controversial. Why not end with controversy? Uh, I've had lots of discussions and arguments with friends, colleagues, and enemies on this. Um, I practice, or try to practice, and try to, try to show my students how to practice in their reading objectivity. Now, you know, the, the, it's a work of literature. How can you read it objectively? It's not a scientific text, right? It's not or a mathematical equation. Two plus two equals four. You can't read that any other way, right? Surely a work of literature is, 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 is malleable, it's flexible, and it has a life of its own, and uh, it, it, it resists being encapsulated or grasped. So how can you read it objectively? Well, I say the first thing you have to do, which is basically the same thing as we have to do in everything else, is to read it through the eyes of someone other than yourself. Um, in other words, at least at first. Now, you can, you can, you can, once you've shown you can read objectively, you can then read subjectively. But if you can't show you can read objectively, you have no right to be pontificating subjectively. Right? So, so, the, so the, to read objectively, the, the perf perfect way of reading objectively is to see the work as God sees it. Right? But as we can't ask God 
who allow us to see a work of literature as he sees it, that's not possible, right? So we can't do that. So we have to look, what is the most authoritative voice to see this work through the eyes of? And the most authoritative voice is the author. Authorial voice is the authoritative voice, okay? That doesn't mean it's not transcendent things happening. Doesn't mean there are things happening that might amaze the author himself after he rereads it. Well, that certainly wasn't my, my conscience. It's great. I mean, if you ever write anything worthwhile, the thing when you read it again astonishes you because that's much better than you could possibly have done consciously, right? So there's that transcendent dimension. But that transcendent dimension does not uh, negate or contradict the authorial voice. In other words, I don't read something, if I read something which is good, and think, wow, that's much better than I could possibly have written, although I wrote it, but I don't think, I don't believe all that. It's a load of nonsense. I, I, I meant to write this, and it says something completely opposite, right? That does not happen, right? So it still it transcends the incarnational dimension of the relationship between the author and the work. It doesn't contradict it. So the transcendent does not contradict what I'm saying, even though it won't be in, encompassed by it. So you learn to read as far as possible through the eyes of the author. There are other voices, other eyes, such as critics, but you don't ever read the voice of a critic. You know, don't try to see work through the eyes of a critic until you can see it through the eyes of the author. And the good thing about this is it's about getting beyond ourselves. It's about overcoming pride, and pride is always connected to prejudice. Right? So, so to love is to get outside yourself by giving yourself for the other. Reason is to get outside yourself by contemplating the other. Um, the beautiful is to get outside yourself by wondering and contemplating the other. So the same thing with reading, we have to get outside ourselves and read it through the eyes of the other who has most authority, which is the author of the work himself. Now as regards Shakespeare, for instance, this is just an example. If Shakespeare is a Catholic in Elizabethan England, then seeing the plays through the eyes of a Catholic in Elizabethan England is going to open your eyes to whole levels of meaning in the plays that you will not see if you insist on reading it through my own personal eyes as a 21st century agnostic. So this is a perfect example, okay? So on that note, uh, we are out of time. I'm going to desist, and Birdie will let us know perhaps what's happening next. Thank you so much. beginning with uh, Homer, Sophocles, and Virgil. And you'll see the title I've given to this is The Virgin Muse. So perhaps I'll begin by explaining what I mean by the Virgin Muse with respect to Homer and the pagans. And really, I, I, I use this phrase because I was very taken by something that C.S. Lewis said about paganism. He said that the the old original pagans are as different from the so-called neo-pagans as a virgin is from a divorcee. Because the, the Greeks uh, were like a virgin awaiting the coming of the bridegroom. In other words, whereas the Jews, if you like, theologically through the covenant and through their experience of salvation history and through scripture, were being ripened for the coming of the Messiah theologically and historically, the Gentiles, through the Greeks, were being ripened for the coming of the Messiah uh, through reason and story, right? So through philosophy and through epic and, and drama. 
so you have these two strands, the strand of the, the Jews and the strands of the Gentiles that, if you like, converge as if by magic uh, through the providence of history for the coming of Christ. Okay? So Lewis relates these original pagans to virgins. And he says, whereas those that modern people who call themselves pagans or post-Christians are like the divorcee who, having married the bridegroom, got tired of the responsibility of actually what it meant to be a bride and have decided to desert the marriage and wander off into the distance. And that, that sort of so-called pagan cannot see with the same eyes, the divorcee cannot see with the same eyes that, as the virgin saw with. And obviously we should as Christians, as, as, as lovers of the bridegroom ourselves, be much more comfortable with the virgin who is awaiting the coming of the bridegroom than with the divorcee who's deserted the bridegroom. Although, of course, we're called to try to help the divorcee come to her senses. So that's, that's that. And the other, the other aspect from Lewis which comes into this, because you know, the early Christians were very antagonistic towards the pagans. And you can understand why, because they were fighting the same turf. Right? You know, the, you know who's going to win the soul and mind of humanity? These old pagan ideas or these new Christian ideas, they were at war with each other. But, you know, now 1,500 years on from that, that war was won, thanks be to God, by the Christians. We can look back with a more dispassionate gaze at the paganism that came before Christ. And again, the way that Lewis does this, uh, let me ask, by the way, this is a book that even lovers of C.S. Lewis seem not to have read. Let me put my theory to the test here. How many people here have read The Pilgrim's Regress by C.S. Lewis? Bertie McDermott, Father Simon Henry. Look at that, the, la creme de la creme. That's for the rest of you. Really? Yeah, it was also one of the first that he wrote, very early. Now, I know some people, such as Father Fezio, uh, the, the, the Jesuit who found the Ignatius Press, doesn't particularly like it. He thinks it's inferior to Lewis's other work. I actually tend to differ. What it is, by the way, is in many ways a formal allegory. Uh, from what we said earlier about formal allegory. Uh, I do it, I think it's great, and the reason I like it is because I'm a biographer, amongst other things, and I love intellectual history, and, and this book is both a biography, because it's Lewis's own intellectual journey from disbelief to belief. Uh, so the various things he read, the various ideas, philosophers and, and literature that he read, um, but also it's intellectual history, because the two, of course, are interwoven, right? So, um, so, for instance, the, 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 the protagonist is John, and John is, the, on one level, the everyman figure, but on the other level, he is C.S. Lewis himself, because it's C.S. Lewis's own journey. And then John, on his travels, and he's supposed to, he's been told that by virtue, Mr. Virtue, uh, who me, Mr. Virtue, who ha doesn't have a personality because he's a person personified abstraction, who just represents virtue, says, we've got to stick to the narrow path, the via media, the middle path between two extremes. If we do that, because it's very Aristotelian, right? If we do that, we'll get there quicker. And of course, virtue does that. Virtue sort of stays to the path, but, but John strays from virtue, strays from Mr. Virtue, and you can stray in two two directions, I forget it right way around now, to, yeah, to, to the north it are straying in the, in the direction of uh, rationalism, so reason, uh, errors made in the name of reason, and then to the south of the road are errors made in the name of 
feelings or emotions, all right? So these various, so he sort of charts the whole of the intellectual history through this, and he meets people like Mr. Romanticism, all right? Who is Romanticism, okay? Uh, Neo-Angular, who's a, an Anglo-Catholic. Mr. Broad, who's a broad churchman, in other words, sort of a liberal heretic within the Church of England. So he, he meets all these various people, um, and the clevers are, the, are basically the modernists in art. And, um, and you, if you know your, if you know, it's also a great game to play, because if you know your intellectual history and you've, you've studied your biographies of various people, he's, he never names anybody, but the descriptions. So for instance, Roy Campbell, who, I've written, who no one's heard of. Who's heard of Roy Campbell? About five, five people. You know, a, a significant poet of the 20th century and a convert to the faith, lived a very interesting life, was in Spain at, during the Spanish Civil War, um, fought in World War II. But anyway, he's in there, uh, a, a caricature of him. But you have to know what Lewis wrote about him elsewhere uh, and know the reputation he had at Oxford because they were contemporaries at Oxford as undergraduates together to get it. So it's fun. But anyway, it's a formal allegory. And it, it was that from that I mentioned earlier. Can you remember what, what personified abstractions from that book I mentioned earlier? See if anybody was listening. Huh? No, not Boethius. Sorry? Anyone? Wasn't wisdom. What? Well, no, philosophy, was, philosophy was one of her younger sisters. Reason. Okay. So, so if you have, that, was, that was the one where reason, the knight in shining, the woman, the beautiful woman in shining armor, two younger sisters called philosophy and theology, save John from the monster who's the spirit of the age, who has him enslaved, right, to the spirit of materialism and Freudianism. Uh, so, you have all this going on, but he meets John meets at some point in this father history. The father history says to him, "Well, you know." In the past, there were the landlord's people. The landlord is, is God, because this is all his land, right, that they're on. He's the landlord. Um, the landlord's people. And then there were the, the, the rest of the people that were not the landlord's people. And so the, land, and the landlord's people, could, they hadn't forgotten the rules. There were rules. In other words, the landlord's people, the Jews, knew the law, right? They knew scripture, they knew the law. Everybody else did not know the law. They were ignorant of the law. So he said, but what did God do? Did God basically say, we, we don't want anything to do with those people. Forget those people. Just stay with the chosen people. What Father History tells John is, because they had forgotten how to read, God sent them pictures. All right, and this is, this is basically what Lewis, in, in harmony with, with Tolkien, this philosophy of myth, that it was through the telling of stories that the pagans came, were coming to some of the great truths. And that's where we, we now le head into here to our discussion of these texts. I'm going to begin with the Iliad. Probably if things are structured the way I imagine them being, see how good my imagination is here, um, that uh, we're probably going to spend a significant amount of time on the Iliad and less time on the other three. Um, sometimes I think it's just necessary to engage a text. Um, but one thing I want to say, first of all, about this, there's one sense in which classical literature is more realistic than romantic literature. Uh, and there are various definitions of romanticism, and when we do the romantic poets, so I'll go into that a bit, in a bit more detail. But 
with romantic, romantic literature, we get, if you like, we're allowed through the omniscient narrator to enter the head and the heart of the characters. We're told what the character's thinking. We're told what the character's feeling. Now, that's not something we can actually experience in reality, right? I can't read all of your thoughts at the moment. It's probably just as well, right? For all of us. Um, so that's not realism in that sense, right? But with the classical literature, with Homer, we don't get that. Homer doesn't tell us what people are thinking. He doesn't tell us what people are feeling. We have to make judgments about what they're thinking and feeling and what sort of person they are and what their motives are in exactly the same way we have to do it in real life, by observing them, by observing what they do and what they say. So that's the way you judge. So there's this, uh, the classical literature, one of the things that, that, if you like, characterizes it is the emphasis upon action, right? It's what people are doing that allows us to understand the reasons for them doing it as opposed to romantic literature, where we're just told what they're feeling. And obviously now we know what they're feeling, we know why they're doing it, right? Because we're inside their head, so to speak. Okay. Um, so the Iliad. What I'm going to do, I'm do highlights. Let me also explain, this is going to be a one and a half hour version of a 15 week course. Good luck, huh? good luck. But let me explain how, how, how so this is a microcosm with all the challenges that that microcosm uh, entails. But what happened in the, in the full-length version, so to speak, is that I would get so engrossed with my students in going through the Iliad and the Odyssey at, at some length. And we would do basically the Iliad, the Odyssey, and the, the, the uh, three Theban plays of the, Oedip the Oedipus cycle, whatever you want to call it, by Sophocles, and Aeschylus' Oresteia and the Aeneid. So there's quite a lot to cover in a 15-week course. And what would happen, I'd spend so much time on the Iliad and the Odyssey that then we were racing against the clock for the remainder of the titles. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I basically, what tended to happen is the poor Aeneid got squeezed. Now, one consequence of that is I know it less well because I taught it less much, if that's the correct phraseology. Um, uh, so I'm gonna be doing the same here, basically, because I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna play to my strengths, which makes sense to you, uh, rather than expose my weaknesses, although I've just confessed them. Um, so I'll be, that's part of the order. So um, I'm going to go into this, but rather than doing what I do with my students, I'd get one of the students to actually read the, the passage that's highlighted, and then we'll talk about it. We won't have time for that, but I'm going to sort of dive into just certain key highlights that I think are important for us to understand, that allow us to understand what uh, Homer is doing in the Iliad. All right? So let's go to, uh, you can't go, can you? You haven't got the text. I shall go, and you will wait patiently while I do so, to uh, the introduction. And one thing's very interesting. If you remember, I talked about authorialism, as I call it, objective reading. Right? You, you could see the devil's advocate now saying, well, hang on for a second. We can't do that here. You know nothing about Homer, right? We can't see this work through Homer's eyes. Apparently, he was blind anyway, so he wouldn't be able to see very much. Um, well they, of course, that's the whole point, isn't it? The whole point of Tiresias, right? And, uh, and of Oedipus, the, the, the most important thing is you don't see with your physical eyes, right? You, you, you see through wisdom. Um, but I would say the same thing does apply. What we mustn't do is, uh, is think, well, because you don't know anything about Homer, that gives us the right as, to treat this as a tabula rasa, you know, as a blank slate on which we can now write all our 21st century prejudices. 
and read it as a 21st century person. Because one thing we do know about Homer, he was not a 21st century person, all right? So I would still say we should use the same technique as far as possible. And the more we know about Homer's time and culture, the better, as well as the fact this will inform us something. So one thing about Homer, for instance, I think that we can, one thing we can say, this other part of history, that the history that all of history, not just the recorded history, there were clearly golden ages in philosophy before the golden age of philosophy. Because there's a great deal of philosophy in Homer. He was clearly living in a culture which was philosophizing about the big issues. And this is obviously 300 years or so before Plato and Aristotle come along. So anyway, I want to read what uh, Richmond Lattimore, this is his translation that we're using in his introduction first as a way, way of a, uh, a summary of things. The Iliad is not the story of Troy. So Ilium is Troy, so the Iliad actually means the story of Troy, but as he rightly points out, it's not actually the story of Troy. Neither the beginning nor the end of the war is narrated in the Iliad. All right? So it doesn't begin with the elopement of Helen, uh, with, with Paris and the, 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 the fleet of ships that's uh, launched in consequence. And nor does it end with the fall of Troy. It finishes before the fall of Troy. We begin in the 10th year of the siege, and we end some weeks later, still in the 10th year, with the city still untaken. Moreover, the main plot of the Iliad is something narrower than would be the chronicle of a piece out of the siege time. It is the story of Achilles, so one person. Or more precisely, it is, as has been frequently seen, the tragedy of Achilles, which develops through his quarrel with Agamemnon and withdrawal from battle. The sufferings of the Greeks in his absence, the death of Patroclus, who tried to rescue the Greeks from the plight into which Achilles had put them, and the vengeance taken by Achilles on Hector, who killed Patroclus. It's a summary of the plot here. This is not chronicle, but tragedy, with beginning, middle, and end. It is the story of a great man who, through a fault in an otherwise noble character, and parentheses, and even the fault is noble. So this, for me, is Richmond Latimer. I don't see anywhere in the text. See, that what the other thing about the, a certain type of enlightenment, or should we say disenchanted classicist, is that the reason that a lot of these people, the first wave of classicists become classicists, is because they, they actually were tired of the scholasticists, right? the scholastics. So they played leapfrog. They, they, we had a thousand years of, of, of Christendom, uh, where uh, Augustinian and Thomistic theology was at the center of things, and Christian realism and philosophy was at the center of things. And people wanted something new. And as we discussed earlier, because we can't make anything new, we can't make things from nothing, what we did was found something that already existed and did things with that. So we, the, the, the classicists of the late Renaissance leapfrogged over the whole period of, of, of Christendom, rediscovered the ancient Greeks, and then did things to them, all right, in the spirit of the Renaissance, not in the spirit of Homer. And one, so one of the things was to, to seek a different sort of morality. They wanted the Greeks to be very different from the Christians because it, it was a way in which they could escape from Christianity. Let's find an alternative way of seeing things. So, so, this, uh, so Achilles' pride and his anger is a noble fault, according to Richmond Latimer. I don't see that in the text, and I challenge other people to do it. I think he wants to see it in the text, and I think he's following a tradition of other classicists that want to see it in the text, that Achilles is good because he kills people, because that's what 
pagans did, right? I don't think we see that actually in the text. But in, in, a fault, in an otherwise noble character, and, and even the fault is noble, brings disaster upon himself since the death of Patroclus is the work of free choice on the part of Achilles. And the, the anger of Achilles turned first against Agamemnon, then against Hector, is at last resolved in a grudging forgiveness when the body of Hector is given back to the Trojans. This, not the fault of Troy, closes the story. So there's a nice succinct half-page summary of the main aspects of the plot, because I'm not going to go through the plot. We're going to see you know, what, what is Homer doing in this story. And it's generally, uh, we, we don't know much about Homer. Uh, one thing I do believe, by the way, uh, is that Homer is not Homer's. Because, uh, you know, there, there are people, and there could be two Homers in the sense it's possible that the, the Homer that wrote the Iliad is not the same Homer that wrote the Odyssey. But what is not possible is that the Iliad was written by a committee. I, 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 had, I had the dubious pleasure once of, with other members of the faculty at Arvimu University, trying to, to write as a collective uh, a, a, um, a philosophy of the curriculum. And we would spend literally two hours arguing over one sentence and the placement of a comma in the sentence and whether, whether the comma should be a semicolon. Right? Committees do not write anything worthwhile. This is a work of individual genius. Right? Um, I would say, by the way, Beowulf might have been written by more than one uh, person in theory, but that's because if you actually look at it, it's three different stories, and particularly the third one seems to be tagged on. So that's possible that that was an oral tradition that some, at some point someone wrote into one script. Anyway, that's for later. All right, so let's go on to page 54 here. Turn your page. We're going to page 54 together. Um, okay, so this is Richmond Atomore's attitude to Homer's attitude to the gods. I have said little in this introduction about the part played by the gods in the story of Troy, partly because the modern reader will generally be less interested in human than divine character, sorry, more interested in human than divine character, partly because the question is too complicated to discuss in brief compass, but I will state br briefly a few conclusions. So basically, he doesn't want to say much about the gods because we're not really interested in gods, are we, right? And of course, as the gods, is, is, that's what gives the, the Iliad its supernatural character, give it its theological depth, right? When you said the gods aren't all that interesting to us, you're really saying we're not really interested in any of the deeper supernatural stuff that's going on in the story. So you really, what you're doing in your anti-Christian, anti-supernatural uh, prejudice is, is, is stating your inability to actually see the work as Homer saw it. Pride and prejudice. So the gods of Homer are mainly immortal men and women, incomparably more powerful than mortals, but like mortals, susceptible to all human emotions and appetites, therefore capable of being teased, flattered, enraged, seduced, chastised. As immortal people, they may also represent projections of feelings or activities in the observed world. Thus Ares is an immortal person, son of Zeus, protector of Troy, a brutal and blustering character. Ares is also war, Ares in lowercase, so to speak. And as such, he is a force, a fact, and has no character at all. So in other words, the gods are both persons and personified abstractions. Uh, it depends on how they're being used. Um, the two concepts may be combined. When Helen protests to Aphrodite, who has dragged her off to Troy for the sake of an unworthy man, 
I think she is doing two things at once. First, she is appealing to a supernatural person who is making her do what, she, what, the, what that person wants. Second, she is talking to herself. So that susceptibility, to that susceptibility, her own Aphrodite, which has made her behave in a manner which the excellent mind of Helen considers idiotic. Again, so again, the gods as real persons uh, who also might be projections of our own personalities. Then two, these gods have in relation to men absolute power. God may be overborne by God, the strongest is Zeus, who can do as he pleases, but often refrains from, from so doing for fear of unpleasantness. Zeus is not subject to fate. When Hera protests against his notion of saving Ilion or rescuing Sarpedon against fate, she implies that he can do these things if he insists. The weighing of destinies on scales, apparently impersonal, is a ceremony represented, representing compromise with a different view. And then we have this view, again, common, that you know, Homer didn't really believe in these gods, he's just using them for a story. And again, how do they know that? What they're doing is, no, I like Homer, I don't believe in God. Therefore, I'll like Homer even better if he doesn't believe in God either. Right? So, so we simply do not know how seriously Homer took his Olympian gods, to what extent they are his divinities, or those of his tradi tradition, or those of his audience. For narrative, they are enormously useful. They can turn events, reconcile otherwise impossible motives, rescue people who have got to be rescued. But one thing the gods as persons of Homer do not do, they do not change human nature. They manipulate Achilles, Aeneas, Paris, but they do not make them what they are. The choices are human, and in the end, despite all divine interferences, the Iliad is a story of people. So a few things there. First of all, it's not a story of people, it's a story of gods and men. It's a story of both. And, we, we need, and that's, that's what the story is. So we, to, to, to downplay the gods is dangerous. Um, the, uh, there's one other thing I was going to say about that before moving on to the text. Um, oh, yeah, so what he's really saying, that the gods really are um, useful literary devices. So they can, they, can, they can allow you to cheat. So if someone needs to be saved, they're like a deus ex machina, right? That, that you can just... You can cheat by bringing a god in to do something that otherwise you wouldn't be able to make work. Um, but that's not, that's really, uh, really saying the gods are used because of a literary ineptitude. On the, <laughs> you need them because you, to make the plot work. And again, I don't think any of this is held out by the text. I think that uh, Homer clearly believes in the gods. Um, what sort of gods he believes in is something which I, I want to explore. So let's go to the start of the start of it. We're going to read the opening lines because it's so Homer does something which you are all. If you go to a creative writing class or take a course in creative writing, Homer does what you'll be told almost immediately not to do. You don't give away the whole plot in the first page, right? And Homer does that. Homer tells us exactly what's going to happen and why it's happening and and his moral purpose for telling the story in the opening lines of the poem which makes it, impossible, you know, makes, makes it ridiculous that all of these classicists and these critics miss the point, because it's not as if Homer's hiding it with any cleverness. He's actually showing it to us. And again, as Chesterton said, doesn't matter how I make the point of a story stick out like a spike, the critics will come and carefully impale themselves on something else. And that's, this, that's really the, the way this, this book's often... So let's, let's, let's cut to the chase right at the beginning. What does Homer tell us? Well, 
sing goddess, the anger of Peleus' son Achilles and its devastation. So first of all, it begins as a prayer, right? Sing muse, sing grace, sing the god of inspiration. In other words, use me. Allow me to tell the story well and truly as a great work of the imagination. Anoint it, the anointed imagination. I, can't, I was going to use the word baptize. That wouldn't be appropriate. He's not a Christian, right? Um, but bless it. Give me the gifts. So it's a prayer. So on one level, immediately, the Iliad is a work of piety. It's framed at the beginning as a prayer to the gods. And in fact, he's inviting them to help, help the goddess of inspiration, goddesses of inspiration help him to tell the story well and truly. And what's the story about? It's about one man's anger. And I would argue sort of in, in, Chester, in, in Christian theological terms, the anger is a consequence of the pride. Because you actually, why, why, is, why is Achilles angry? What makes Achilles angry? Right? It's his pride. So, so in that sense, sing goddess. You know, let's sing this prayer of praise and tell this story about how pride precedes the fall. You could actually open the whole thing up that way. And not just that, and the consequences. So the anger of Pedestal Achilles and, the, and, and, and its devastation. So destructiveness in other, in other translations. But immediately after that, well, not immediately after that, after a few sub-clauses, but still in the opening sentence uh, as, of, uh, as translated here, line five. So I'm going to just skip the sub-clauses, which really just gives details about how loads of souls were thrown down to Hades. In other words, lots of people killed. So, sing, goddess, the anger of Pedestal son Achilles and its devastation, and the will of Zeus, which was accomplished. So, the other thing that's happening is that... It, Yes, Achilles is proud and he's angry and his pride and anger is destructive and it kills loads of people, destroys lots of people. But above all, it's the will of God that's accomplished. And by the way, this is setting the tone here, not the will of the gods, but it's the will of Zeus. And as we shall see, and I'll say it now, just in case we don't have time, um, that it's made perfectly clear in, in this later on, in more than one places, more than one place, uh, book uh, eight in particular, that Zeus is omnipotent in the sense that if Zeus decides something's going to be done, there's nothing any of the other gods individually or in combination can do to thwart Zeus's will. There's even a metaphor that's used, basically, let's have a tug of war. And all of the gods, all of you gods, this is Zeus speaking, all of you gods, can be on the other end of the rope, and I by myself will be this end of the rope. Let's have a tug of war and see who will win, because I will win. And the, and the, and, and the gods, in response, are silent. Now, what does that tell us about the theology of Homer? It actually tells us it's not a million miles away from a belief in a monotheistic god. So yes, you've got all sorts of gods, all sorts of supernatural powers that are not human, 
But all of those supernatural powers, whether they're good supernatural powers or bad supernatural powers or schizophrenic supernatural powers, none of those supernatural powers can thwart the will of the one God who has more power than the rest of them put together. All of a sudden, it's not a million miles different from Christian cosmology. Because there's one God above all, and then there's warring, what we would call angels and demons underneath that may tempt or inspire or protect human beings, invisible to them, but nonetheless having real power over them. But above all that is the will of God. So all of a sudden, we're actually in a cosmology, a cosmological space that's not that alien to us. It's, it's as if, you know, because it, it, you know, we know that by the time Plato and Aristotle come along, they, they don't and can't see how at the center of the cosmos is chaos. There has to be order and harmony and, and unity. And if there's those things, you're moving inexorably towards a belief in, in one God, even if you don't know who or what that God is, until unless it's revealed to you. Well, no, what I'm saying is that Homer is suggesting this. Um, again, I'm trying to read objectively, right? Uh, so I, in the wider Greek culture, I'm sure there were all sorts of superstitions, and I'm sure that, they, that, they, that many people thought that Poseidon could, could uh, twist the will of Zeus or, or what have you. I have no idea what, but I'm, I'm only talking about Homer. I'm not talking about the wider Greek culture. Um, and clearly this is, um, I say clearly this is, I, I'm guessing that this is part of an evolution of, of, of Greek theology towards some sort of, that's why I'm saying the background, there's a lot of philosophy in this, where Homer's clearly thinking about things on a deep level. Um, and the, the whole idea, if you see the order by looking out the window, right, that doesn't, that doesn't harmonize with the chaos at the center of the cosmos. And of course, loads of different gods and goddesses fighting it out permanently with each other is chaos at the center of the cosmos, right? So uh, all I'm saying here is that Homer clearly has one god who's more powerful than all the others. And as he says right at the beginning of the epic, that one god, the will of that one god is accomplished in spite of any other desires on the part of either human beings or of gods. But whether that's indicative of a wider culture in which he swam, I wouldn't know. Uh, I would suggest, however, as Homer was clearly widely read, I mean, uh, Aristotle writes about him at length, that uh, this was not something which was alien to the people or heretical to the people. So. All right. Um, and let me, let me look at the plot because there's a, something going on here. So there's the background, of course, how we got here is because of an act of lust, which was also... Um, a betrayal of the law of Xenia. And the law of Xenia, uh, X-E-N-I-A, for those that don't know, is basically the, 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 the Greek law of hospitality. But it's a, it's a supernatural, it's a law rooted in the supernatural because you have to be um, civil and courteous towards your guests because your guest could be a god in disguise. And as you don't know that, the best insurance policy is to assume that and be polite to your guests. So there's the law of Xenia. And again, not a million miles from, you know, see all your neighbors as Christ, right? 
because in so much as you've done it unto them, you've done it unto me. It's not that different. So, of course, you know, when uh, Menelaus um, hosts Paris, because, of course, there's in healthy cultures, you know, there's, there's always a relationship of responsibility, the common good. Well, if I'm going to be courteous to you, you don't take liberties with my courtesy, right? So Menelaus is, is the law of Xenia. He invites Paris in, then Paris seduces his wife and elopes with her. Right? Well, that's certainly a breaking of the spirit of the law of Xenia. Right? Uh, and Menelaus, as part of just justice that needs to be done, says, you know, this, has to be, this, this breach has to be rectified. So he raises a fleet. So that's the backdrop. That's not what it's about, right? Because that's not what, that's not what, that's not what Homer says at the beginning, that this is about Paris and, and Helen. No, it's about Achilles and his pride and his destructive and the will of God. But there's a subplot that's, that what's, what kicks off, what starts Achilles' anger. What God was it then set them together in bitter collision? Uh, this is Agamemnon and Achilles. Uh, Zeus's son and Leto's Apollo, in anger at the king, drove the foul pestilence along the host and the people perished. Since Atreus's son had dishonored Chryses, priest of Apollo, when he came beside the far ships of the Achaeans to ransom back his daughter, carrying gifts beyond count and holding in his hands, wound, hands on, on, on his hands wound on the staff of gold, the ribbons of Apollo, who strikes from afar and supplicated all the Achaeans. So what happens? Basically, Agamemnon seizes Chryses' daughter as a war prize, and what's something which if certainly isn't very feminist in this, is that women are certainly often handed out as prizes by the men. Um, so he seizes uh, Chryseis, Chryseis' daughter, as, uh, as a war prize. Now, what Chryseis then does, which again is decorous, it's the law, he ransoms her release. He brings gifts, and ample gifts, it's made perfectly ample gifts to pay for her release. So the decorous thing then is that Agamemnon should give the woman back. And to make things even more complicated, of course, this is a priest of Apollo. In other words, that you know, there's, the, there's the thought that if he defies this, the priest will bring down a curse upon him. All right? So what's happening? We have, see, we're getting parallels here. Because Agamemnon is guilty of the same sin as Paris is guilty of, all right? Of basically taking a woman against the will, this type of father instead of the, of, of, of the husband, and refusing to give her back. Because right? the, the sin of Pry and the sin of Troy, the king of, king of Troy, is not, because he, he didn't elope with, with Helen, but in accommodating the adulterous relationship, in refusing to return Helen, he's an accessory to the sin. Right? So, so then you have basically, so you see in the parallel, Agamemnon's doing the same thing as Paris is doing. And then, then all the rest of the Achaeans cried out in favor that the priest be respected and the shining ransom be taken. Yet this pleased not the heart of Atreus' son, Agamemnon. So basically he says, well, I'll give, it, I'll give the, 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 the woman back, but I'm, one of you is going to have to give something to me. So he says to Achilles, well, if I must give my woman back, I'm going to take your woman. Briseis, who also, Achilles, is not married, has taken as a war prize, right? And he says, I love that woman. 
and yet he wishes later that she was dead. He doesn't love her. Um, so he, we, what we have here, right? We have Agamemnon uh, stealing Chryseis and refusing to give her back. And when uh, Agamemnon takes Achilles' prize uh, from him to, pay, to compensate the fact he had to give his woman up, then Achilles gets angry. And then Achilles actually wills the defeat of his own size, at least his own side in the war. So he becomes a traitor as well to his side, who are on the side of justice, in order to get his own will done. And Paris and Helen. So you see this pairing up. So there's a connection between the pride and anger of Achilles and lust. Right? It's, it's, it's um, not... You're treating women in the way we're talking about, but also not being prepared to do what's right in putting things, putting things right once you, you've done things wrong. So again, women as prizes already says, let's move on. Um, interesting adjective, Hector, throughout the, the, the Iliad is often described as, um, as blameless. Why do we think that, that Hector is blameless? Anybody? Yes. Right, so that's certainly true, and certainly Homer is very good, by the way, because it's not done very well very often in literature of depicting a traditional family uh, and, and the love between a father and son, a love between a father and wife. Um, he does it superbly. It doesn't take a lot of space, but it's very powerful when he does it. Um, yeah, but I, he's blameless ultimately because the original sin which causes this to happen is by his brother Paris, all right? And Hector is forced to defend his people. So it's a, it's a war and defense. And of course he says in his relationship with his wife and son, well, I have no choice but to fight, not just to, de to defend my country, in other words, as an act of patriotism. But if I, if I don't fight to stop these people, they're going to take you away into slavery, which also means rape, right? Um, uh, and they very well kill our son, because he's royalty, but at the very least he's going to be raised as a slave. So. What do you want? Of course I'm going to fight. But he's blameless because he's not responsible for the fight he's become embroiled in. Right? So he's another one. So another, another aspect of this is sin has destructive consequences, not just for the sinner, but for the innocent also. Innocent victims of sin. Menelaus is also described as blameless. And again, because his wife was... His wife eloped with Paris, right? Paris stole his wife away. One occasion, by the way, Paris, who's basically an obnoxious character in the, in, in the epic, uh, when, when Hector, not for the first time, basically points the finger and says, you, you know, evil, uh, women crazy, uh, evil cajoling woman crazy, you know, ruled by your loins, by your lust. It's all because of you that all these people are dying. You know, and, uh, and uh, Paris turns around and said, why point the finger at me when I am blameless? Right? Because it is about literary voices. So the other thing very important in reading literature is who is saying it. 
right? So it's the narrator who, say, who calls Hector blameless, it's the narrator who calls Menelaus blameless, but it's, but it's Paris who calls himself blameless, all right? So in other words, he, he can call himself that, but he isn't. So who is saying it? Let me give an example of how important this is, by the way. Has anybody here seen, because this is worth seeing for the most part, uh, back in the late 1960s, 1968, I think, the BBC produced, I think it was the BBC, uh, certainly British television, produced a wonderful series by Sir Kenneth Clarke called Civilization. Has anybody seen that? All right, just a few again, but it's to check it out. It's very good. But Sir Kenneth Clarke, and, and you know, he's clearly not a believer at the time, but he's a wannabe believer, and uh, about 10 years after that series, he's was, received into the Catholic Church. So he's, he's on the right trajectory, but he's still very ignorant. So he's very good as an art historian. He's useless on literature. Uh, so for instance, if you're, gonna, if you're gonna watch that series, just skip the episode on Shakespeare. It's just, uh, it's not good. Um, but it, he concludes it by saying, you know, basically, basically says that, that Shakespeare is the first really non-Christian nihilist, right? First post-Christian man. And, 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 and the way that he proves it at the end, he quotes, he says, you know, this, is, this ultimately perhaps is Shakespeare's final judgment on humanity and on life. He says, you know, life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. This is Shakespeare. Well, no, it isn't. It's Macbeth, right? Uh, it's Macbeth right at the end of the play after he's already killed loads of people. It's all coming undone. His wife's committed suicide, right? Uh, everything's gone wrong, and now he's in a state of abject, violent despair. So Macbeth might be a, 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 the first postmodern uh, uh, nihilist, but don't accuse Shakespeare of being Macbeth, right? That just means you can't read literature. So again, who's saying it? So I won't read this, but just take my word for it, that, that, that basically the whole theme of book eight of the Iliad is almighty Zeus. It's Zeus basically saying, look, I can do what I want to do and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, and let's move on to, all turn now please to page 201 in your books. And we are in book nine. So, Where shall I begin? So Agamemnon is now speaking. I was mad I myself will not deny it. Sorry, first of all, aged sir. She's talking to Nestor. So Nestor's an older man, and there's a reverence for the wisdom of the elders, and he shows wisdom. And basically, Nestor says, the injustice must be righted. You know, the injustice you've done to Achilles in stealing his woman has to be righted. You can't perpetuate. All things, all things are going wrong because you've been cursed by the gods for this act of injustice, right? And so Agamemnon says, Aegis, sir, this was no lie when you spoke of my madness. I was mad. I myself will not deny it. So again, sin or lust is madness, not in your right mind. Worth many fighters is that man whom Zeus in his heart loves, as now he has honored this man and beaten down the Achaean people. But since I was mad in the persuasion of my heart's evil, I am willing to make all good and give back gifts in abundance. And he gives a whole, whole load of gifts to 
Achilles, including all of which, nearly all of which, by the way, are women, um, <laughs> are spoils of war. Uh, and then including, of course, the one woman that was the cause of the problem in the first place, and even allowed to marry you know, into royalty. So lots of bribery all involving women. Um, but the key thing there is that, you know, that Agamemnon realizes that he's, uh, that he's incurred the wrath of God. And the only way that he can actually get back on the right side of God, back in grace, if you like, is by really doing penance for the sin he's committed. Um, and I want to talk about this theology, because obviously I love theology, and, I, and I'm intrigued, as you would have gathered, by Homer's theology. Um, so this is Phoenix again, now speaking to Achilles, because Achilles, in his anger and pride, still won't accept the gifts. So he said he loved Briseis so much, and he, that, when uh, Agamemnon offers to return her to him, he says, forget it. So that's how much he loved her. Um, but this is, this is now Phoenix speaking to Achilles, trying to give him some advice. Beat down your great anger. It is not yours to have a pitiless heart. The very immortals can be moved. The gods can be moved. Their virtue and honor and strength are greater than ours are. But even they can be moved by petition. Because they're just beseeching him to, to, to change his mind. And yet with sacrifices and offerings for endearment, with libations and with savour, men turn back even the immortals in supplication when any man does wrong and transgresses. So you can sacrifice to the gods and have pity and mercy for your sins. Are you greater than the gods? And then he says, and this is what I like, for there are also the spirits of prayer, the daughters of great Zeus. Okay, so now we have, right, the spirits of prayer. So the, in one sense, these are gods, like the muses, or goddesses. But they're also, of course, in some sense, a personified abstraction of prayer itself. It's Homer showing us what the spirit of prayer is. But there are also the spirits of prayer, the daughters of great Zeus. In other words, they're daughters of God himself. But listen to this. And they are lame of their feet, so they're crippled and wrinkled and cast their eyes sidelong. So they're goddesses, but they're old god goddesses, and they hobble along. And cast their eyes sideways, who toil on their way, left far behind by the spirit of ruin. And uppercase R, so this god of ruin who's much more powerful, much stronger, much faster. He goes ahead and causes chaos in people's lives. And hobbling up behind in the wake and the mess left by ruin are these daughters of great Zeus, the spirits of prayer. Um, so they said, and the prayers follow as healers after her. So the spirits of prayer, they heal the destructive and disastrous consequences of ruin. If a man venerates these daughters of Zeus as they draw near, so if a man, if you like, conforms to the spirit of prayer when, 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 when it moves him, when, it's, when these spirits of prayer inspire him, such a man, they bring great advantage and hear his entreaty. 
But if a man shall deny them and stubbornly with a harsh word refuse, they go to Zeus, son of Kronos, in supplication that ruin may overtake this man, that he be hurt and punished. All right, so again, I'm not strictly Christian. I'm not suggesting that, but... But in another, by the way, in another translation, the word, and I, my Greek's not good enough to know which was better, but the, word, the spirit of ruin is the spirit of folly. Now, the spirit of foolishness, so, you know, so the spirit of sin. So it's, the, it's folly, foolishness that brings ruin. And it's the spirit of prayer that coming in the wake of such folly and ruin that brings healing if the heart is humble enough to supplicate those spirits in prayer. Okay. So we see something here of where home is coming from theologically. Um, so again, staying with the theology. Sort of Homer's doctrine of grace. So Palidamus comes to bold Hector and speaks words to him. Hector, you are too intractable to listen to reason. This is another recurring theme, by the way, right? Paris, Agamemnon, Achilles, Hector, all refuse to listen to reason. They follow their passions and their recklessness with, 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 with disastrous consequences. Reason is good to Homer. You are too intractable to listen to reason. Because the God has granted you the actions of warfare, and because you're a great warrior, therefore you wish in counsel also to be wise beyond others. So you think because you've got a, you know, you're a good warrior, you've got big biceps, therefore you're wise. The two don't go together. And the fact that you're strong physically doesn't make you wise. But you cannot choose to have all gifts given to you together. You cannot choose which gifts to have. You can't have all the gifts. You can't have all the talents. To one man, the God has granted the actions of warfare. So yes, one man is granted great physical physique and, and, uh, and, and he's a great fighter or athlete. To one, to be a dancer. To another, the lyre and singing. And in the breast of another, Zeus of the wide brows establishes wisdom, a lordly thing, and many take profit beside him, and he saves many. So first of all, we have this doctrine of grace. Different talents and different gifts are given to different people, different aptitudes. And this is God-given. There's nothing you can do about it. You're not going to be the wisest person, even if you're the strongest. But above all these things, wisdom is a lordly thing. And those who listen to the counsel of wisdom take profit, and it saves many. Um, all right, and that is an interesting thing because I, you know, I um, when I taught this, I have fun because you know I, I I don't say that Zeus is omniscient. He obviously he states explicitly that he's omnipotent, and the gods don't contradict him. But is he omniscient? Well, surely he's not omniscient. And there's a wonderful story, book 14, where Hera, his wife, wants to seduce him. And the reason she wants to seduce him is because if she can basically get him thinking about other things than Troy, then, you know, then Poseidon and the, and, and the gods that are against Zeus's will can go and do, wreak havoc and do what they want. 
So you won't know anything about it because he'll be making love, right? So, uh, so she wants to seduce him. Now, the interesting thing there is that you know, this relationship between Zeus and Hera is not, obviously, it's not the most perfect of marriages because she has to go to Aphrodite to make herself desirable to him. She can't just go and do it herself. She has to get some supernatural help to be physically attractive. Um, and she has to lie to Aphrodite because, uh, because otherwise Aphrodite would not grant the wish. Um, anyway, so, and she also goes to the goddess of sleep so that after they've had their fun, then she can beguile Zeus to sleep. So distract him, put him to sleep, we can, we can, then we can make hay while the god sleeps, right? So she approaches him. And what's really interesting, I don't know if I'll read it. Um, I won't read it. But um, <laughs> immediately she comes up to him. He gives her a litany of all the other women that he's made love to. You know, I, I, you can't really imagine any man, you know, if his, woman, if his wife or girlfriend or anybody is trying to sort of make up to him, uh, saying, oh, yeah, you are really beautiful. You remind me of, you know, this woman and that woman. And, this one. Oh, and she was great. I mean, she was beautiful, but yeah. And then, and, and then at the end of it, you know, at the moment, at the moment, at this particular moment, there's no one I desire more than you, right? It's not likely to actually work, generally speaking, right? But, of course, Hera has ulterior motives, so it doesn't, you know, so you, I wonder, personally, I wonder, is, does Zeus know what Hera's trying to do? And he's having fun with her, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this, I'm going to make this as hard for you as possible, right? <laughs> I tell you, all the other lovers I've had, I mean, I'm, I'm going to make no effort whatsoever to play ball, but if you want to still do it, we'll do it, right? Um, and so then, you know, he, they do it, and we actually have descriptions of uh, flowers growing under them while it's happening, so the earth did literally move while they were doing it, so it was obviously good. And then he goes to sleep. He's beguiled to sleep. And while he's asleep, all, all hell breaks loose, right? The, everyone can do what they want, and you know, it's like the teacher leaves the classroom, and all the bad kids are now throwing things at each other, right? Uh, and so you think, so I sort of say to my students, well, clearly Zeus is not omniscient, right? How can Zeus be omniscient if, uh, you know, he, he's seduced and then beguiled into sleep, and while he's asleep, all, all this chaos happens? But then he wakes up. When he wakes up, he tells Hera everything that's going to happen for the rest of the book. So uh, Homer commits the immortal sin of telling you the, the whole plot twice. This is, no, you don't have to bother to read the rest of the book because I'm just telling you what's going to happen in the rest of the book. Zeus tells you the whole rest of the plot, and it happens exactly as he says. So, you know, is, this an, is there an incongruity here? You know, because uh, if he's asleep and they can do what they like, and he says, you know, what's going to happen? But think about it, and if I had my blackboard now, if Zeus is omniscient, if he does know all things that are going to happen, then he's also, in a sense, omnipresent. He's outside of time, and he would know that Hera is going to put him to sleep. He would know what's going to happen while he's asleep, right? and he would know that he could put it right once he woke up. Right? I mean, where's the problem? If he, if he is omniscient, this is, I can play that game. It's not going to stop anything. Everything's still going to be exactly as I want it to be, regardless. And in fact, that's the lesson that Hera gets. He said, well, how stupid I was. You know, to think that I could beguile Zeus and, 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 and succeed in this way. And then she says it to other people. So we, we're all wasting our time. If Zeus wants this to happen, it's going to happen. All right. Um, move on from the other so otherwise we won't have time because we're an hour into this class already. Um, 
So we do have, you know, melodrama in the best sense. Melodrama can be good. You know, when Hector's killed, we have long descriptions in books 22 of Priam's wretched fate, of Andromache's grief, of, of Andromache's is Hector's wife, and, and of their child, uh, Astyanax's fate. Um, there's a description of the afterlife. Another thing that intrigues me is what do the pagans believe about the afterlife? And it's actually the inversion of what Christians believe. And this is, this is a real difference. So they're not atheists. You know, the, soul, the soul doesn't die. Uh, the soul goes to Hades. But what's left after life is a mere shadow of, of what you had here because you don't have a body anymore. You're just sort of a, a shadow of your former self. And anyway, as, as C.S. Lewis says, you know, this, for a Christian, this is the Shadowlands, right? The, the, the real life with the real fullness of who we are, it's made in the image of God on the assumption we get to heaven, of course, and don't go to the other place, right? The real fullness of what it is to be a human person and who we are as individual, unique human persons will become real in heaven. And this, by comparison, is the Shadowlands. And that's the complete opposite to the pagans, that you die and you'll linger on as some sort of memory of yourself. But you'd be insubstantial, no body. Um, and now, but this is the thing about, that I'd never seen anybody else get in the, in, in, the, in the Iliad. And to me, it's so strikingly obvious. I'm sure other people have. I'm really, what I'm doing is showing my ignorance of reading critical literature on the Iliad. I'm just showing my sins of omission. But I've never seen it. I should read more. But the penultimate book of the Iliad is a book you think, again, you know, I thought Homer is supposed to be a good writer, but this is really bad. Right? So we're getting towards the end of the book, and there's this long digression of seemingly irrelevant digression of, well, let's just have some fun before the funeral and everything else. Let's, um, uh, let's have an Olympic Games. We'll have a horse race, a chariot race, and then we'll have some wrestling matches and throw some, throw some javelins and have some fun. And you're reading it, and it goes on for a long time. It goes on for the whole book, basically, the whole of book 23. And I think, just get on with it, all right? Just get on with the story. I mean, what's this? What's relevant about this? And of course, by now, if you've read 22 books of Homer, he's brilliant. So you have to treat him with reverence and deference. He's doing this for a reason. You get your hand up. Oh. So let me just read a bit of this. Uh, so, oh, where are we? See what's happening here. So this is chariot race. So see, it's a bit like the, uh, a, a pagan Greek car chase, right? Imagine the action. The horses came in running hard. Diomedes stopped them in the middle of where the men were assembled with the dense sweat starting. So, so Diomedes comes first, all right? And dripping to the ground from neck and chest of his horses. He himself vaunted to the ground from his shining chariot and leaned his whip against the yoke, the winner. Nor did young Stenelos delay, but made haste to take up the prizes and gave the woman, surprise, surprise, as the first prize, to its high-hearted companions to lead away and the tripod with ears to carry while Diomedes set free the horses. After him, so second place. I could have got you to gamble on this before and made it much more interesting, wouldn't it? Put money on it. Who's going to win? And after him... 
Nelian and Antelikos drove in his horses, having passed Menelaus, not by speed, but by taking advantage. Okay, so, so Antilochus comes second, but by cheating. And the person who's cheated upon is Menelaus. So now, really, our allegorical antenna should be twitching. Hang on for a second. Is Homer trying to tell us something? Is this a metaphor? In other words, this is an allegorically applicable thing happening here. So, and then, but Meriones, strong henchman of Idomeneus, was left a spear cast length behind by glorious Menelaus. So he comes forth. And then fifth, last and behind them all came in the son of Admetos, dragging his fine chariot and driving his horses before him. And seeing this brilliant swift-footed Achilles took pity upon him for coming in last. So Achilles is now involved as well. And stood forth among the Argeys and spoke to them all in winged words. The best man is driving his single-foot horses in last. So, the, you know, the best man's come last. Come then, we must give some kind of prize, even though he came last. And well, he deserves it. Second prize. Let first place go to the son of today. So, you know, so the first prize can get the first prize, but the second prize should really go to the horse, the, the, the person who rode last, right? Well, you can imagine this response there. So all get spoke, and all gave approval to what he was urging, and he would have given him the horse, since all the Achaeans approved, had not Antilochus, son of great-hearted Nestor, stood up to answer Achilles and argue, Achilles, I should be very angry with you if you accomplish what you have said. You mean to take my prize away from me? With the thought in mind that his chariot fouled and his running horses, but he himself is great. He should have prayed to the immortal gods. That is why he came in last of all the running, because he's a godless person. But if you are sorry for him and he is dear to your liking, there is abundant gold in your shelter, and there's bronze there and animals, and there are handmaidens and single-foot horses. You could take from these and give him after as a prize still greater than mine. Give him what you want, but you're not taking my prize. Because it's an act of injustice. But then, but, but the mare, I will not give up. Notice why I think I would say that the actual sex of the horse is uh, relevant here. I'm not going to give up the mare. And the man who wants her must fight me for her with his hands before he can take her. Anybody's got to fight me over my dead body, even you, Achilles, before, he, before I give up my prize. So he spoke, but brilliant, swift-footed Achilles, favoring Antilochus, smiled since he was his beloved companion and answered him and addressed him in winged words. And Antilochus, if you would have me bring some other thing out of my dwelling, a special gift to you, you may loss, then for your sake, I'll do it. Sure, you're right. So it's not turned into violence, right? Achilles says, yes, good point. Yeah, I don't have to take it. I've got plenty. I can give him some, something of mine. So we have magnanimity, which has been lacking so far in everybody's relationships. So then um, so he's going to give the gift he's going to give. He spoke and told Automedon, his beloved companion, to bring it out of the shelter, and he went away and brought it back, put it in Eumelus's hand, and he accepted it joyfully. But now Menelaus, heart full of bitterness, stood up among them in relentless anger against Antilochus. Antilochus. So I never, I'm, I'm not a classicist. 
I said it one way for years, and I'm trying to say it the other way. I say it both ways now. I'm, I'm, I'm ambivalent and amb ambidextrous, or ambivocal. And the herald put the staff into his hands and gave the call for the Argives to be silent. And he stood forth, a man like a god, and spoke to them. Antilochus, you had good sense once. See what you have done? You have defiled my horsemanship. You have fouled my horses by throwing your horses in their way, though, though yours were far slower. In other words, you've only got that mare that you say you'll fight to the death over because you cheated. Pharaoh is going to end up in war and fighting and everyone being destroyed. And so, I myself will give the judgment, and I think no other man of the Danaeans can call it in question, for it will be right. Antilochus, beloved of Zeus, come here. This is justice. Stand in front of your horses and chariot, and in your hand, take up the narrow whip with which you drove them before, then lay your hand on the horses and swear by him who encircles the earth, and I swear on the gods, and, and shakes it. You use no guile to baffle my chariot. Swear to the gods. In other words, I dare you to blaspheme that you didn't cheat. And then Antilochus, well, he's not prepared to do that. Enough now. For I, my lord Menelaus, am younger by far than you, and you are the greater and go before me. You know how greed, greedy transgressions flower in a young man, seeing that his mind is the more active, but his judgment is lightweight. So the young are reckless, full of energy, but reckless. Therefore, I would have your heart be patient with me. I myself will give you the mare I won. And if there was something still greater you asked for out of my house, I should still be willing at once to give it to you, beloved of Zeus, rather than all my days fall from your favor and be in the wrong before the divinities. You're right, I cheated. I did what was wrong. Please take the mare back. Now, what you have here, of course, is the metaphor for Agamemnon and Achilles at the start of this, which caused the whole thing, and going further back, Paris and Helen. If Priam had forced Paris to give Helen back, there would not have been the war. So what was lacking, of course, was magnanimity, forgiveness, virtue. And then it carries on, though. It gets better. And so the heart, O Menelaus, was thus softened within you. So having had this act of magnanimity, he's offering the mare back. The Menelaus is, 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 is so moved by this act of charity or magnanimity he says, Antilochus, I myself, who was angry, now will give way before you. No, no, no. Let me be magnanimous. Since you were not formally loose-minded or vain, and since this is you're not normally like this, you're out of character, it's only but that this time your youth got the better of your intelligence. So I will even give you the mare, though she is mine, so that these men too may be witnesses that the heart is never arrogant nor stubborn within me. So the whole metaphor there is, hey, look, there was a better way of doing this, right? All of this death, all of this destruction was completely unnecessary. If you actually practiced virtue, the will of Zeus would have been accomplished in a much less destructive way if you'd done his will in the first place. And then a bit later on, we actually get here, it's, um, Ajax and Odysseus are in a wrestling match, and they're, they're so equally matched. No, 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 they're really, really tight. Keep going, no one can get the better of the other one. And then, um, uh, 
who's it says this? Achilles, yeah, Achilles. So it's significant who says it. Achilles says, wrestle no more now. Do not wear yourselves out and get hurt. You have both won. So to tie is it's a win-win situation, right? Therefore, take the prizes in equal division and retire. Take half the prize each and just retire. So the rest of the account is going to have their contests. So again, what you see here, you know, different methods of, of um, showing the truth in, a, you know, in different writers. Here you see the, the use of the metaphor, a, a, sub, a small subplot episode within the bigger picture, which serves as a metaphor for the whole picture. And it's so often overlooked. I mean, just think, well, let's get those pages, right? I mean, what's this got to do with the rest of the story? And the only thing I'll say by way of finishing, um, well, that's the stating of a moral here. So just, just the one phrase here. The lust that led to disaster. The delusion of Paris who insulted the goddesses when they came to him in the court and favored her who supplied the lust that led to disaster. So Paris favored Aphrodite and Aphrodite in return made him lustful towards Helen and that lust led to the disaster of everything we've just read. Then Priam, the father, has to go as a beggar. And this is something we see repeated in the, in the Odyssey, of course. Has to go as a beggar to supplicate Achilles for the body of his son back so they can give him a proper religious burial. But the very interesting thing here is the other literary faux pas that Homer makes. In other words, you won't be taught to do at your... At your um, creative writing class, it doesn't actually, it begins with Hec Achilles, it's all about Ach Achilles, right? Achilles is anger, it's destructiveness, but it doesn't end with Achilles, he doesn't choose to end it with the death of Achilles, well, yeah, that's how it ends, right? I mean, we know that Achilles is going to die, that's, that's known, but that's not what Homer chooses to end the story with. Homer chooses to end the story with a series of eulogies to blameless Hector, and it's the burial of Hector that brings the curtain down. So it, it breaks walls because it, there's no balance there, right? Begins with Achilles and ends in Hector. But basically, he's really saying, though, that there's no praise for Achilles after all this. But there is for the, the blameless victim of the sins of others. Let's praise him. And if you want to see a prefiguring of Christ in that, you can do so. But obviously, Homer did not intend that. All right, well, as I suspected, that took an hour and a quarter. Oh, well. So very briefly on the Odyssey, which ironically, I haven't spent all my time in the Iliad, I actually prefer. Um, yeah. We're quoting from the text that it says, one is granted the qualities of warfare, and another one is granted grace, and so on. Do you think Paul had this in mind when he wrote 1 Corinthians 12, when he talks about the various charisms of the Holy Spirit. Well, I, I doubt, I, I don't know, I, I'm not going to accuse St. Paul of being a plagiarist of Homer. Um, <laughs> but uh, it sounds I, I, quite, you know, so close. Yeah, I, 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 he's writing to I, I don't actually know. Obviously, Paul, Paul, Paul's a, a very cultured and civilized man. I, I don't know whether he read Homer, but I somehow doubt it, and I, 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 I suspect it had more to do with direct inspiration of, from Christ than uh, mm -hmm. literary derivation from Homer. But I think it's more a case of great minds 
thinking alike. You know, mm -hmm. we are converging on that place which we call truth. Okay. Um, if you have an open heart and open mind in the way that we discussed, you will converge towards the truth. And I think that's what we see happening here. All right. Okay, thanks. All right, so I, I'm going to go for the Odyssey very quickly because, uh, again, assuming it's the same author, we've already got some idea of what Homer's about. It means poor Sophocles is going to be left out. I might squeeze him in tomorrow. But what about Virgil? He might be squeezed out completely. It's been the fate of Virgil in my life, I'm afraid, but there's a sin of, sin of omission on my part. So the key thing, and the key thing, this is why I would use the, the blackboard, and, and I don't know how you can use your imagination with this. It's difficult. But um, the, the very important thing to get right about the, uh, about the Odyssey is its structure. Because what it doesn't do, uh, un unlike the Iliad, it doesn't start from the beginning in book one and follow the whole story progressively to, to book 24. Uh, a large part of the story is told by Odysseus in the middle of the story. All right? So, um, so how, how shall I put this? Um, well, so, yeah, books one to four, which is mostly about Telemachus, who's uh, Odysseus' son, is set in the present, right? The present within the story. And then books five to eight, which is um, uh, when we start hearing about Odysseus' journey, is also set in the present. So books one to eight are set in the present. Then in book nine, Odysseus is invited to tell his story. He's been traveling for years now, for nine years, his so-called great wandering. And it's from book nine to book 12, to those three books, that we actually get the vast bulk of the chronology of the story. Um, and then books 13 to book 24 is back from, 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 from uh, the telling, finishing of the telling of the story to his return to Ithaca in the end, is again in the present. But the point is, in terms of time, uh, most of the chronology is, is covered in that, those, just those uh, four books, 9, 10, 11, and 12. So if you read it in the chronology of the story, what you see happening is Odysseus is uh, as a homo viator, as a man on a journey, journey home, right? Not literally to heaven, but it's journey back to home, and heaven ultimately is home. So there's a, certainly a, a foreshadowing of, of, of that bigger journey. But he begins as a pirate. So the first time we see him, the beginning of the story when he tells it, he and his men rape and pillage the Kikonians. And then having raped and pillaged, they get drunk and almost get caught and killed. In other words, their recklessness almost destroys them. That's where Odysseus starts. And then he grows in wisdom as the story goes on. He commits his own original sin when um, well, the Lotus Eaters, by the way, again, the Lotus Eaters, what's the, what's, the, what's the big sin about, who here, by the way, has read the Odyssey? Okay, more, good. What's, what's the most important thing that's wrong about eating the lotus plant with the Lotus Eaters? What's wrong with it? Yeah. What do you forget? It's actually stated explicitly. It is forgetfulness, but it's forgetfulness of a specific thing. You forget the way home, all right? So, that, so the thing about eating the lotus plant is you forget your purpose, right? You start taking the drug and you forget what life's about and what you're here for and what you're supposed to be doing. Same thing happens in the, in the Aeneid when Aeneas gets passionately involved with Dido, right? And in this case, it's a different sort of drug. It's, it's lust, but he 
forgets what his purpose is, the journey to found Rome. Um, and then Polyphemus, again, Odysseus is often called in the Iliad resourceful, right? He's smart. We know he's smart. He's clever, but he's not wise. The difference. So, you know, he tricks Polyphemus, the, uh, the, the Cyclops, and they escape. But the trick was, you know, he gave his, who are you? I'm nobody, right? And again, the act of humility. Who am I? I'm nobody. But then when they get away, he gloats. I'm not nobody. I'm not even somebody. Do you know who I am? I am the great Odysseus, and, and this is where I live. Here's my name and address. <laughs> and and, and consequently, oh, prays to Poseidon and says, curse Odysseus from the name and address. And thereafter, he's cursed. So his act of pride curses him for years of travels before he can actually return home. The original sin. And he, there are other examples of that. When, you know, uh, don't open the bag of wind, and then when he's asleep, his men do, and they, they actually can see Ithaca, and then they're blown way, way back again. The defying and breaking of laws through selfishness. The eating of the cattle of Helios. And then a magic veil. That, you know, Odysseus is given this magic veil by a goddess, and he's told that you can use this magic veil, but as soon as, you, as soon as it brings you safe to shore, you have to cast it over your shoulder and don't look back, and then we'll take him back. So when he lands, literally, at the island, he is naked. He has absolutely nothing on. He has not one single possession in the world. But he does have this magic veil, right, which has just saved his life. How easy would it have been to say, well, I can't give this up. It's anything I've got, right? No, he obediently tosses over his shoulder, and then from that naked position, makes the further progress. He makes other resist resistances. And then, growing in virtue, he's trapped on an island by Calypso, this beautiful goddess. Let's put this into context here, all right? Odysseus has been away from home now for almost 20 years. He's a middle-aged man. More to the point, Penelope, his wife, is a middle-aged woman. The goddess, on the other hand, right, is the perfect age and looks beautiful. And however good Penelope looked in her prime, she doesn't look as beautiful as Calypso, because Calypso's a goddess, right? Furthermore, the goddess is never going to grow old, ever. And furthermore, the goddess says, if you marry me and live with me, I will bestow immortality upon you. We can stay young, and you can be married to this most beautiful, much more beautiful than any mortal woman ever. Or you can go home to your middle-aged wife who might not even love you anymore. Might even be alive. She might have got married to somebody else. I mean, you put it in that, in, in that, that sort of sense, and you think, hey, hang on, I can understand why Jesus might be tempted, right? Under those circumstances. So, but by this point, it's again towards the end of the journey, his growth in wisdom from being the, the raping and pillaging pirate at the beginning to a man who chooses mortality. I would, in it, you see this parallel, of the course, in The Lord of the Rings and, and throughout Tolkien, chooses mortality rather than immortality through love. I would rather get old with my wife, who's not as beautiful as you are, though I probably won't tell her that, um, <laughs> uh, you know, than, than, than live here forever with you. So by the time he returns home, how does he return home? Not in glory, not on a war horse with all these men marching behind him, returning from 
the Great War Troy, he returns home like a beggar who has to take the insults of the very men who have been trying to seduce and have been besieging his virtuous wife. And again, if you're looking for metaphors, we know that Homer likes metaphors, right? The Iliad's about the siege of Troy. The, the Odyssey's about the siege of Penelope. But the difference is Penelope's a virtuous woman who actually does marvelous things to, to, to protect herself and preserve herself from these evil and wicked men. One thing I did like about metaphor, and I think we're, we're going to have to close then, I'm afraid, um, is one of the things she does. She tells the, the, the suitors who are getting impatient that one of, them want, one of them is going to marry. One of us is going to marry you if you like it or not, so just make, make your mind up, which. And she said, well, I, I will do that as soon as I finished uh, weaving a burial shroud for my father-in-law, for her husband's father. And she does it, and every night she un unravels what she's stitched. All right, so she's making this last forever. But so metaphorically, of course, the burial shroud's not so much for her father-in-law, it's for her husband. So every day she's thinking, well, he must be dead now, right? How can he not be dead? Because he'd have come home if he wasn't dead. He's, she's weaving the burial shroud. And every night, in hope and prayer, and she prays a lot and she fasts a lot, she unravels it all again because she refuses to accept that he's dead. So again, it's a homer's use of metaphor as a means of conveying deeper meaning. Right, I'm going to end there. I, I, I'm going to make some decision between now and tomorrow about whether I'm going to try to squeeze some Sophocles into the medieval. I probably won't. We've got more than enough. I, I might hold it in reserve. Um, but uh, okay, any final questions? We're about two or three minutes early. And he named Zeus as kind of the head of the hierarchy. Yeah. Is how, how do you play fate? Fate. As a, fate as a factor in Homer. Well, I, even Zeus, even Zeus, all of the gods, every single one of them answer to Zeus, but even Zeus answers to fate. Well, no, uh, he doesn't answer to fate. Um, no. But the but the, but the first thing you need to understand is, again, uh, the modern classical scholars make fate very fatalistic, and otherwise it's all about predestination and what have you. Now, the, 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 uh, the same thing is done, for instance, in, in, in Beowulf, right? Uh, the word weird or weird in Beowulf, W-Y-R-D, when we get the modern word weird, is normally translated as fate. And that's not what the Anglo-Saxons meant by weird. Anglo-Saxons meant by weird the fact that there's a weird correlation between the way things happen and the will of the gods, or the will of God, in fact, by the time you write the Beow Beowulf, right? So there's this it, it, so a weird woven web. In other words, everything we do has ramifications to everything else. We're all connected in some sort of mysterious web of, and the word would really be providence. All right? So the, 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 remember that the classicists, as, 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 as children of the disenchantment, were looking for something that, uh, that would allow them to escape the embrace of the scholastics and of, and, and, and of Christendom. And so fate is one of the things that they, that they, they employed for that. But you've just, I hope you've just seen from this that what Homer shows over and over and over again here is that free, the freedom of choice comes with responsibilities. And if that freedom of choice and those responsibilities are not actually uh, fulfilled, there are disastrous consequences. And that's the will of God that that should be the case. So the connection. 
and it's Zeus's will that's done, not the will of fate. In other words, because once you start talking about fate, right, none of this makes any sense. It all comes falling down. And why does it matter? I mean, Helen, Helen and Paris had no choice, right? And, uh, you know, Achilles had no choice. Nobody had any choice. It was all going to happen anyway. And that really breaks down the whole morality of what, what Homer's dealing with here, and, uh, as I hope I've shown. So I think that the whole idea of the Greeks being uh, slaves to fate, I think, is very overstated by post-Christian uh, classical scholars. Agamemnon had a more complex situation than just sort of exchanging, pardon the modern term applied to the ancient classics, but exchanging booty for prizes instead at the end, and in that he'd already sacrificed his own daughter, Emphagema, in favor of satisfying Artemis as opposed to Zeus. So isn't he actually a more complex figure than this parallelism that you're drawing with this? Well, the first thing I would... I, I, I would um, uh, I would caution against is bringing in other stories into this story. Uh, in other words, that Homer is producing a work of literature here. Uh, he, he may well be aware of other stories surrounding the gods and, 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 and the kings and the greats and what have you, um, but it's not in his story. Uh, and I certainly don't know enough about the Greeks about which, what the chronology of the stories are and, and who, who, what's newer, but if you, I think it's illicit because you, you can do this very easily. It's read all of these as part of a seamless fabric with the whole mythopoeic tradition uh, of the, Greeks, the Greek myths, and th that, that negates the, the integrity of this as a work of art. And so this is a work of art. You know, it, it, it's Agamemnon's place within this story which needs to be judged not what he may have done in other stories that Homer may or may not have been aware of and may or may not have been an allusion to. Now, I have been talking about intertextuality uh, and um, where, where that's present, where an author of a work would deliberately connect to another work, and, and so that to add extra meaning to his work. Um, and it, one thing I would say about these texts, because they're so old, we don't have the benefit of the depth of knowledge of what Homer's put into this. There could be all sorts of intertextual stuff in here that would be better known to his contemporaries. The same thing with Shakespeare. Shakespeare's made lots of in-jokes about what's going on in, in contemporary politics. And you really have to be an Elizabethan historian to even start to understand what, what he and his audience would know, right? But we, four centuries removed, don't. Well, how much more is that the case with Homer? We don't even know who he is, let alone you know, what, you know, what he's alluding to. So it's difficult, but I, I do think we have to take the work in its in, integrated whole and not uh, uh, suggest things in it that aren't in it because they're somewhere else outside of it. <laughs> no, I, 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 I actually, I like to think that in everything I do, I try to be a good Thomist. Oh, I, 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 it's, all about, it's all about the quest for objectivity, right? And for realism as a Christian would understand it. Okay, thanks so much, everybody. Tea? Tea's always good.
So uh, we're going to wrap it up here for this segment. It's Mike Church here live on assignment, Chevania, France, in the heart of the Von Bay. Day one of the Anointed Imagination Conference. You just heard Joseph Pierce. The title of the talk was The Virgin Muse, Homer, Sophocles, and Virgil, although uh, Joseph uh, spent almost all of his time on Homer. Uh, so he said he may get into, the, into Virgil and Sophocles tomorrow. So we'll have a little break here and come back in about a half an hour or so. Be joined by Professor Anthony O'Hare, Philosophy of Education, Part 1. This is a two-parter. So if you're out there listening, you're going to want to stick around and make sure that you, uh, you catch Part 1 so that Part 2 makes complete sense. And I just want to remind you that if you are listening to this out there on the uh, preview stream, what remains of it on the app, or if you're listening to this on the premium stream, and you do not own or did not uh, become a co-sponsor to the talks, that you can do so today still for the uh, low, low price of 50 bucks before the price goes up tomorrow. That's again, you can do so today for $50 and you could own all 21 of the talks that you just heard, uh, just one small part of them uh, from uh, Master Pius. And Joseph has eight more talks to go, if you can believe that. Plus my Q&As, my uh, special feature interviews, podcasts, and everything that we do here uh, on assignment in the Von Day, all part of one phenomenal package for a mere $50. Uh, right now, if you order today, go to MikeChurch.com forward slash shop. It's MikeChurch.com forward slash shop. And take advantage of the $50 deal. And... Uh, You'll get all 21 of the talks, and as I said, all the features. We'll have some of these talks uploaded on the site momentarily, including the one that you just heard. So for all of us here on site and on location in Chevagna, France, Mike Church, the King Dude, signing off. We'll see you in about a half an hour right here as we continue the Anointed Imagination Conference live from the Chevagna Studium, beautiful Chevagna, France, in the heart of the Vendée. And we'll be right back.